In this episode, we'll be doing TFOS 1960 to 1973. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. 1960. Story number one. We Empathic Few, written by K. Cern. Empathy. That was the one true deciding factor. The rare spark, the great filter, that prevented a race from rising from their cradle and joining us amongst the stars. To join the Galactive. There were exceptions, of course. Every race had their individuals devoid of empathy, but they were always quickly identified and rehabilitated to become productive members of their civilizations. And there were those exceedingly rare races that had managed to find another path, the ravenous insectoid hives, the glacial networks of crystalline matrices, and, of course, the one mind. But for almost the entire galactic rotation, we of the Collective have stood together United in our empathy, against any threats the dark may throw at us, ravaged, bleeding, but always together. And together we would rebuild and wait for the next predators to come sniffing after us. But before you believe the galaxy holds only darkness and fear, rest assured, there is always hope, always joy. Civilizations may fall, races may disappear into the dust of history, or fall to the horrors of the void. But there are always new lights rising to join our beacon of empathy. I was there, a mere 150 of their local years ago, when we welcomed the most recent of these lights. And while their civilization was young, their very species, barely as old as myself, their light already blazed brighter than I had ever seen before. A passionate, enthusiastic people that embraced us joyously and without prejudice. They threw themselves with vigor at understanding the gifts we had brought them faster than any species the Collective had encountered before or since. They grasped the workings of the universe and began their journey to their rightful place beside us. We tested them, of course, as we do with all newcomers. We told them our stories, our histories, our myths, and celebrated when they responded with pure, unadulterated empathy. We welcomed them as kin. Unfortunately, we were not the only ones drawn by their light. The One Mind, the antithesis to our collective, once a beautiful people of artists and poets, they had become envious of our long lives and seeking to emulate it. They had turned to their machines, uploading their minds into networked bodies of iron. They had succeeded in becoming truly immortal, but linked together as they were, their minds had crashed and raged against one another. Empathy was replaced by a primitive need to survive, each mind desperately trying to dominate the others. We believed them lost, doomed to destroy themselves, and turned away. We were arrogant, and we were wrong. Eventually, a singular insane will rose to dominate the rest. Due to our folly, for almost as long as the Collective has existed to guide the lights of the galaxy, the one mind has been there to extinguish them to consume them and add them to itself. Now we watched in horror as the enemy approached the fledgling world of our new kin. We knew there was no stopping the One Mind. We had lost that chance when we had turned away so long ago. But our bright new children were so young. They did not understand. We urged them to flee with us, but they would not. Instead, they threw us from their worlds, banished us from their territories. At the time, I believed that we had somehow made a mistake, that these were no empathic beings at all. 
I watched in horror as they efficiently, unfeelingly broke down entire worlds and converted them into machines of war like we had never before seen. Gone were the impassionate scholars and explorers, replaced by something more akin to the insect hordes that devoured all in their path. These creatures weren't light in the dark at all. They were the fires of war. I am ashamed to admit it now, but I was too far away, racing for my own safety, to witness the titanic clash of these two heartless creatures. But I felt it. The entire galaxy felt it. A shockwave through time and space itself, followed by a flash of light so brilliant it lit up every planet in the galaxy for one beautiful instant. No matter how far away, then darkness. When we dared to look back at last, we were horrified at what we found. An entire galactic arm gone. Every star, every world, nothing but cosmic dust. Except one, on a small blue and green planet orbiting an unimpressive yellow star, we found an obelisk of polished black stone. I remember reading the words carved upon the stone and weeping. It had not been the bloodlust or brutality that had filled their hearts at all, but an empathy that we could never hope to match. For our kin amongst the stars and those yet to join them, humanity gives our lives so they never need to again. End of story. Story number two. Two worlds, two reactions. Written by Ostrich Master. Queen Marika Ashara of the Amazons of the Red River opened the door from the altar, pale-faced and shaken. Wordlessly, she moved herself to the nearest available chair and sat down in a heap. By the gods, Queen, you look terrible. Was the ritual truly that taxing? exclaimed Baal Shati, captain of the royal guard, worriedly. Well, the ritual was strenuous indeed. That is not what has left me shaken so. That did not stop Ririka, however, from wincing in pain from the effort she put forth. Even the brief connection she was able to forge with the spirits of the Aether had required almost every mana crystal in her domain's possession, not to say anything of her own life force. What could have left you in such a state then, if not the ritual itself? The fact that the ritual worked. It worked truly! Baal was suddenly beside herself with excitement. You truly spoke to a spirit of the Aether! Ririka looked at her with weary expression. Yes, though now I wish I hadn't. Baal's enthusiasm quickly dropped off. Why? Surely you got a divine guidance we need to fight the Imperials. Ririka nodded. I did in fact, Captain, and should we heed it, the Bismati armies massing at our border will crack with terror. My fear does not come from the visions of defeat. It comes from the spirit itself. I do not understand, Queen. How would a spirit leave you petrified with fear? Mirika inwardly sighed to herself before starting. The spirit hails from a realm far from ours, one of death incarnate. It spoke of entire nations dying, as if it was nothing. Baal recoiled slightly. That is disturbing, to be sure. What advice has such a spirit given us? He told us to fight from the forests, to kill them at a distance. It said to hit their baggage train and let them starve. Cowardice, dishonor! Baal was on her feet now, shouting. How could the Holy Spirit order us to fight with such filthy tactics? Rurika looked at her with a pained expression. It is how its own realm does war, Captain. 
And you expect us to imitate a realm of cowards? Never! I haven't told you about the realm's war, Captain. Baal's expression narrowed. Petty, for sure, as it is with coward soldiers. Mirika's voice became strained as she recited what she heard. Baal, the spirit told me that in the last major war, Risk Kingdom 14, it fielded a force of 12 million soldiers. Of that, half a million died. It is lying, it has to be lying. That's more people than live in the entirety of the Bismati Empire. It's just not possible. Baal was met with a heated glare. I was raised in a court, Captain. I can tell when somebody is lying or telling the truth. Whether or not they're a spirit doesn't matter. I don't know how it's possible either, but it was telling the truth. The captain of the Royal Guard remained silent for several moments before speaking again. Twelve million. How does one even train that many knights? There aren't even that many swords in the world. Rurika's already present frown deepened. As it happens, I asked that same question. Do you know how it responded? Hell, they don't have knights. They use peasants, cots, Baal. It even told me they don't even have a knight's chivalry on the battlefield. Baal scowled and returned. Cowards, then, like I said. Why else would they not fight with honor? The response she got sent shivers down to her very core. Because it's inefficient to kill that way, the spirit told me. Because it's easier to kill without it, it told me. Inefficient? But where is the honor in that, in not giving your opponent a fair fight? At that, Rurika's expression changed from abject horror it had displayed since leaving the altar to one of contemplation. The spirit told me to never fight with honor, fight to win. Honor is found in what you're fighting for, not the fight itself. Baal looked thoughtful at that. That is certainly one way of looking at it. Rurika suddenly stood up, ignoring Baal's surprised gaze. And it is the way we will abide by. I've decided so. We are fighting for our homes and our freedom. She turned towards Baal. Draft our orders of battle based on the advice the spirit has given us. I want them out within the hour. Are you certain, Queen? Rurika locked eyes with Baal. It is the only way we'll survive this war, Captain. By fighting to win. Now go. Baal Shati, Captain of the Royal Guard, responded with a bow and left the room to carry out her orders. Before leaving to oversee the preparations for the war herself. A new kind of war. Keen Rurika, Ashara, of the Amazons of the Red River, paused to say a prayer. No great spirit of war, wherever you may reside. Know that you have blessed us with the chance to survive. To win this war. To be free. Cake Fecker 2001, today at 8.02am. I just had the goofiest lucid dream, man. Germaphobe, today at 8.02am. Better not have been the fecking psychopath. Cake Fecker 2001, today at 8.02 a.m. Shut up. I spent 20 minutes teaching a tan girl with her honking pair how to conduct asymmetric warfare. Edited. Germaphobe, today at 8.03 a.m. You were in a lucid dream with a hot girl for 20 minutes, and all you did was teach her how to play HOI 4. You idiot. You moron. Cake Fecker 2001, today at 8.03. She literally asked for it, though. Germaphobe today at 8.03 a.m. Sure she did. Cake Fecker 2001 today at 8.03. Like you would have done anything different anyway. End of story. 1961. Story number one. Never trust a human. Written by Kaysern. Never trust a human. A simple but effective rule. 
and one I strive to live by every time I deal with one of those damned monkeys. I am ashamed to admit it, but it was we Kurong that were responsible for making first contact with humans and introducing them to the galaxy at large. Ever since the great diaspora, we have roamed the stars, searching for new goods to trade, new markets to corner, and new customers to suck a uh, please. And what better market than a mineral-rich system, eager for access to the stars beyond? Anyone would have done the same in our place. For the paltry cost of sharing our FTL technology, the humans were more than willing to make us their sole trading partners, a deal that we could not possibly refuse. They were practically there already anyways, a generation or two at most away from working it out themselves. And what a stir that created when they first arrived on the galactic scene. From a novel technologies to new medicine, bizarre fashions and a vast wealth of entertainment. They seemingly had something for everyone. Gods, you still can't visit a bookstore or see a movie without the latest human crap being pushed front and center to this very day. I was a freelance trader when we made first contact with the humans, buying goods in one sector and selling in another always chasing that big payday. So, of course, when the human craze swept the galaxy, I set course for the human system with a hold full of knickknacks from the Tau Setians and the anti-tumor drugs from the Epsilonians. Total junk. But the humans didn't know that. In fact, they went nuts for the stuff, especially the drugs. Something about curing some kind of common cell mutation disease. The primitives didn't even have nanites yet. But it meant I made a tidy profit and left with a hold full of human goods. And uh, something extra. A human crew member. Now, I've had a crew from all over the galaxy. Techno-organics from the Sphere, cephalopods from the Camelopardados, and even a Vengeganite during the stint in the fringes. I'm the furthest thing from a xenophobe as you could get. But this fellow was downright weird. He claimed to be an engineer of some sort, but its solution to everything always seemed to boil down to hitting something with something else. Percussive maintenance, they called the process. Utterly barbaric. Though, I had to admit, it did seem to work. It also had some of the weirdest habits of any sentient I had ever had the displeasure of spending time with. The most annoying, it called itself a hugger. Meaning that it seemed determined to drape its gangly arms over every other sentient aboard every chance it had. In fact, it seemed to crave this physical interaction and became quite withdrawn when asked to restrain itself, promising to do so glumly. At least until it appeared to completely forget its promise and went right back to hugging. It had then insisted on using our limited water supply for its daily cleaning ritual, and not just simple wiping and moistening that you might expect from a loric or a surak, but a full body immersion in water complete with cleaning chemicals to strip the dirt and oils from its body. No wonder it was constantly losing skin cells if it was scrubbing itself so often. It was only a short shower, it had claimed. Perhaps the most shocking, though, was when it came to feeding. As an omnivore species, I'd assumed that it would have no issue in the hydrocalp that is standard fare on all Kurang vessels. But what I had not expected was that it would insist to be boiled or fried or otherwise prepared before eating citing that raw plant would upset the digestive system and making comparisons to some kind of local fauna farmed for food. And the amount that it could eat, it insisted, was a light eater. But I could swear I've seen beasts ten times its size that ate less. 
Even just talking to the creature was infuriating. It was as if it simply could not string a sentence together without contradicting itself or outright lying. You'd ask how it was faring, and it would reply, No, yeah, you know how it is, Chief. Stick me in an engine room and I'm uh, like a pig and shit. What does that even mean? All the time I asked if it had completed its assigned tasks, and it had replied, Well, I ain't here to fix spiders, am I? My translator just about imploded trying to resolve that one. I quickly learned not to trust anything the creature said at face value, and settled for doing my best to avoid it as much as possible. Not an easy task on a ship the size of mine at the time. Despite all of this, we had settled into a comfortable routine and were approximately halfway to our destination when disaster struck. Noodlians out of the Ramoon Nebula. They had managed to sneak up on us and took our drives out before we even knew that they were there. I knew right away that we were doomed. Today, Noodlians are largely peaceful beings. But back in the day, they were the ruthless pirates and slavers. A scourge on the galaxy. And so it was that I was leading a prayer to the gods for mercy on the bridge for my small crew. All of us huddled together when I felt the ship shudder as the ship clamped onto mine. We were about to be boarded. If suddenly came the call on my communication unit. It was then that I realized the human was missing from our huddle and I felt my heart sink. As strange and annoying as it had been, no being deserved to be alone when faced with death or enslavement. Chief, fire up the engines! The human shouted over the communications unit. Poor creature, I remember thinking. It didn't know that we were crippled by the opening shots. The engines are offline, human Jessica, I informed it. Please join us in the bridge for a prayer. All will be over soon if we do not resist. No time for group hugs. I've rerouted the electrics. Chief, you should be have enough to skip to the nearest servo. The human had responded, shouting over the terrifying sounds of blaster fire over the comm. Pulling myself free from the fearful grip of my crew, I checked the skip drive console. By the gods, the human was right, I thought. But I quickly felt my elation die as I recalled the noodling ship was clamped tight to us. A skip now would tear us in half. Too late, human Jessica, I said over the comm. We have been coupled to their vessel and they are boarding us already. Don't worry about the party crashes, Chief, the human replied, laughing. It was actually laughing. I've convinced them to head home early. Checking the onboard scanners, I was shocked to confirm the human's words. In fact, only the bridge reported any life forms present. Both the boarders and the human were missing. Human Jessica, I called, hearing the strangled sound of my own voice. Please, uh, state your location. Just giving our new friends a parting gift. The human had responded, and I swear I could hear Noodlian screams in the background. The ship shuddered again, and then I realized we were no longer connected to the pirate vessel. Get the crew to safety, demanded the human, and this time I was certain I could hear screams. I will not leave while a member of my crew is not on board. I trumpeted my refusal, my throat sacks convulsing with fear and determination. Fuck! That one was built like a brick shit house! came the human's confusing response. Then, Bloody punch it already, Chief! I'm coming aboard for a group hug right now! Praying to the gods, under my breath, I didn't give myself time to question the human as I activated the skip drive and felt reality smear around me. The sensation only lasted a few heartbeats before ending with a bone-jarring shake that tossed me to the floor. Alarms informing me our engines had suffered complete failure. Putting myself back to my feet, I frantically checked our location. 
The human had done it. We were orbiting a small red dwarf, drifting slowly towards the local shipyard. I activated my communicator unit to inform the human that we were safe. But there was no response. My heart rose into my throat sacks. Checking the scanners confirmed my fears. The human had never made it back on board. She hadn't even tried to. Once again, she had lied to me, angrily. I wiped away the tears prickling my eyes and contacted the shipyard to request aid. Never trust a human. A simple but effective rule. End of story. Story number two. We never thought they'd actually help. Written by Dash MH2 Dash. When we signed a little formal agreement, a nicety, decades ago, that's all we thought of it. A writ of words, promising some arbitrary assistance if the other was ever in distress. We never counted on it being fruitful. We expected it to be a slight drain in time, but the diplomatic balancing was deemed acceptable. So we were truly desperate when we actually acted on it. When we were bloodied, bruised, our enemy burning our worlds and butchering our young. The desperate scrambling of our kind as we sat on the edge of extinction had arrived at this little nicety amongst hundreds of other forgotten archives. We don't know what to say about what happened next. We were terrified when we saw the ships approaching, entire armadas entering the gravity wells of our system, our financial systems flaring with entries, our communication channels spinning to the brim. When the capital ships entered the skies over our world, washing the enemy overhead in hellfire with ruthless brutality, when we received gifts not just from politicians, but even the slightest nobodies, even from their young. Little slides of data with poetry, kind words, expressions of admiration at our valor, respect for our cause and fervor that left our people shaken at their kindness, considerateness, and even as we watched the brutal efficiency with which their fleets dismantled the enemy that had been on the verge of sending us into a quiet night. The gentle care of the aid workers as their soldiers moved like creatures of myth. One tending to our wounds, the others scoured our foe from our homes. When we could form words again to answer, to thank for the help we received, we didn't truly know what to say. We could only express that we were glad that we took the time to make a small nicety with these humans years ago. End of story. 1962. Story number one. The Lost Paths of the Fallen Empire, written by Perilous Platypus. The humans were unexpected. I did not say this to imply any judgment on their arrival. I merely stated as a fact. Humanity arrived long after the loss of empire. The gates of the carrot had fallen quiet, and so followed four generations of war, famine, and death as the Karatan struggle was the absence of everything that had made life possible. How fragile a thing modernity is. How quickly its roots evaporated when the access to the base materials were removed. Between the Great Betrayal and the appearance of humanity, the population of Karat declined by 85%. No fewer than 16 sentient species, non-natives from other portions of the Endless Empire, were eradicated. Only four races remained, one originally indigenous to Carrot, and three that were capable of adaption without the resources of modernity. Carrot was not a jewel of empire, but it had been an important waypoint between such cradles. 
Through the gates had come a great bounty, and Carrot had diligently passed it along minus a reasonable tax. It was a vibrant and healthy trade hub, an ardent contributor to the Empire. Until there was not. It is difficult to get much clarity on the events precipitating the Great Betrayal beyond to say there was also a time of rumor and chaos. Word of dark gates spread, widespread stories of great calamity within the core. And then, nothing. The gates fell quiet, and they were never restored. I recite this history dispassionately, as it is a historian's job to do. But I must confess that the horrors of the decline touched everyone, including myself. There seemed to be no end to the loss of civilization. At best, there were moments of stasis, brief respites of the various combatants gathered their resources before recommencing their onslaught in pursuit of what little was left. Garrett was embroiled in a seventh war of scarcity when humanity appeared in the skies above. We had long since lost power of space travel, the local materials and carrot being insufficient for the maintenance of advanced technologies, and so the craft were initially mistaken as a return of empire. A great rejoicing occurred amongst the restorationists, along with a great and immediate swelling of their numbers. It took some time and a great deal of confusion for the matter to be clarified. These were humans. They were not from the Empire. They had discovered the gates, their purpose, and had begun to restore them to use. They came because they were curious. Confusion. Outrage. Very little of this made sense or was in any way acceptable amongst the great portion of the Keratins. Humanity was not even a constituent race of the Empire. They were entirely unknown. More troubling, humanity, despite having restored approximately 20 gates, had yet to come into contact with the Empire. Indeed, Carrot was the first planet where inhabitants still persisted. In all cases, the planets had been lifeless, often reduced to asks. Though the humans confirmed that signs of fallen civilization remained amidst the ruin. This initial interaction caused some schism amongst the Keratins. The Restorationists largely refused interaction, claiming that humanity's presence was profane and all who dealt with them would be treated harshly when the Endless Empire returned. The other factions were considerably more open to interaction, though some hostility and jousting for position took place amongst them. Thankfully, I was born into a family and a faction that embraced these newcomers. I am fascinated by humanity. They seem so foreign to us, but somehow so friendly. It is difficult to imagine a species that takes to the stars for the purpose of idle exploration rather than purely expansion. They seem more interested in us and our culture than the materials they may harvest. Establishing a means of effective communication took some time. But once a means of decoding their missives was established, we reviewed their first messages to Keratin upon their arrival. They were enshrined here as an indicator of the character of humanity. We are humans. We come from far away. We come in peace. Will you speak with us? They have been free with their technology, despite the significant gaps in biology between humanity and the various races present on Keratin. They have developed a number of tools that have immediately remedied some of our most persistent maladies. The Wasting Plague is gone. So too the Crust and Halving Syndrome. They have shown a great interest in the artifacts of Empire, and members of our faction have been free in providing access and instruction where both remain to us. 
It is difficult to pass their expressions at times. But if we are to take their words at the plain meaning, the Empire surpassed aspects of humanity's current technologies in certain significant respects. They believe it'll take some time to understand and incorporate them, but that such sharing will benefit Carrotin and human alike. It is comforting to know that we have something to give, that our history might somehow enable our future rather than simply doom us. Each human is very different from another. They exhibit a strength of will and mind that is uncommon amongst the species of Empire. I have learned a word that describes my favorite type of human, quirky. This means the human will do unexpected things in particular and endearing ways. I think I am quirky amongst the Keratins. There is much more to be said, much more to consider. I will continue to document my interactions with humanity in this diary in order to preserve a proper historical record. Tomorrow, I am to spend time with my favorite quirky human, Laurus, discussing stellar cartography. Carrot is the first place humanity has discovered with many gates. They have never found a trade world. They are very curious. I will help them. End of story. Story number two. Regularly scheduled maintenance. Written by P4-34-M0. It was the end of the world. It hadn't come quickly or taken us by surprise. Scientists had been predicting it for years. A solar flare, the likes we'd never seen before. More powerful than we could imagine. At first, it was easy to think about, like the plot of a show being spoiled. But as the years and weeks wound down towards the projected date of the end, reality started to sink in. Our whole species, every single one of us, was doomed. There were attempts to save us, of course. Everyone and their father were out digging bunkers or hiding in caves. But what does protection matter when the atmosphere is stripped away and there isn't any air left to breathe? Governments launch shuttles, stores of genetic material, individuals and culture to colonize our rocky planets and moons. But what safety is there when a planet's crack and fall to ash and dust? They tried to keep us calm, to let everyone know that we would be fine. But what good are words against the end of everything you know when looking up chose the truth? In the last year, the sun started to roll and boil. Obtuse, oblong shape shot out of its behemothic mass, scouring away the moon colonies and genetic stores. There's screams and silence echoing hollow in our ears. In the last month, those not hiding in the caves and holes burned themselves under the empathic sun, rioting and spilling their hopeless anathema where they could, screaming and raging against the end. In the last week, the government shut their doors and silenced their voices, hungering and shivering in the dark with the rest of us, waiting for the end of all things. On the last day, we waited and watched. Watched the sun swell and bulge and pulsate. Watched it bleed fire and spew bile, frothing and screaming its rage at our poor, tiny planet. I watched it all unfold, just as I had predicted, mapped every inch with telescopes. I watched every second, every roll, every boil. I burned it out every lens and camera I had, hoping, praying that I would see something, anything, but our inevitable end in the frightful inferno. And that's why I saw it. Not like us, slim, tall, too few eyes and too many limbs, pale, 
dressed in blue coveralls, his hand, one hand, with the sun in his palm. His body a hallucination of the mind, onset by the heat. His fingers blotted out the sun, set shadows dancing and eclipsed the world. And then he opened the sun. With a hatch, I still hear the hinges squeaking in my nightmares. It has been a year and a half since we all stared up into the sky, waiting for the end, and watched in abject horror as our sun, our doom, cracked open like a furnace and poked with tools bigger than a whole world's, worked on by hands that cupped its impossible blaze as carefully as an egg, closed up and locked with a key, burning as gently as it ever had. None of us could believe it, and we may not have if we hadn't got the bull a few days later, taped to the moon. Dan and Harding, human solar maintenance, we make your day bright, or less bright. Consumer complaint, sun too hot, may explode. Technician diagnostic, exotic matter, lodged in inner casing, causing instability in heating element. Matter resolved and complementary tuning performed. Solar diagnostic charge, 1 million. Solar maintenance charge, 1,408,002. Exotic manner disposal charge, 1,000. Subtotal, 2,409,000. Tax, 10. Final total, 2,409,010. Thank you for choosing Dan and Harding Human Solar Maintenance for all your solar upkeep needs. Addendum. Technical team dispatched the wrong system address. Maintenance performed in error. Please contact DHSM Consumer Service for more information or to schedule any further appointments. End of story. 1,963. Interstellar Species, written by Initial Macaron 4340. By federal law, a species was only considered sapient when they achieved interstellar flight. Some would argue sapience is defined as not so much as an indicator of how intelligent a species is, but rather a position of political privilege gained through a fortunate circumstance. This contestation being those identified as sapient were necessarily smarter than those who were mere clients of the Federation, but were just those who happened to experience optimal conditions for scientific advancement, or just those who happened to be much older than the rest when the Federation was formed. Indeed, even the great Trelon brain could not have achieved even suborbital flight if they had hailed from an M5 high-gravity world and had been constantly plagued by environmental and social calamities for the past millennium. The Sapient Council's answer to this was that the client species would make better use of their time mining ore and producing goods than engaging in speculative dialectic. Perhaps a few more centuries of hard work, and they too could unlock the secret of the warp drive. In any case, life as a client species was not bad. For a nominal tax, their sapient allies protected them from deep space hazards and allowed them access to federal trade networks. Beyond that, their systems were left to their own devices, so said the Council. In reality, Sapient Council Intelligence continuously worked on preventing or sabotaging key breakthroughs in client species academia that would lead to interstellar spaceflight technology. In fact, most species were manipulated by the SCI for centuries sometimes even millennia before overt first contacts was made. There was a reason so many civilizations had Fudmuths, a regression to the Dark Age just after the emergence of a fairly advanced society. Believed their homeworld was fat and the center of the universe for a period of time, 
had experienced at least one world war sometime in their history. And it was definitely not that the client species fundamentally lacked moral fortitude, as the council reputedly insinuated. And of course, almost all further arguments against the status quo were silenced by a firm reminder the sapiens had bigger guns, bigger ships, and bigger WMDs. Almost. There's always one. In the outer fringes of Federation space, in a system orbiting a yellow star, lived a civilization of bipedal primates. These primates were an odd lot. One, their homeworld ecosystem was on a class 5 on a danger scale. Usually, the creatures that inhabited such worlds were too busy trying to kill each other to form societies, let alone space-faring ones. But by the time first contact was made, they had already started terraforming a second planet in their system. For another, adversity seemed to be a catalyst rather than a hindrance to their advancement. They were a people easy to turn against each other. The SCI found and murdered each other innumerable times over the course of their history, sometimes over reasons as trivial as belief systems and perceived interspecies variations. But each time they fought or faced a calamity, natural or otherwise, they learnt and adapted. In fact, one of the biggest jumps in technological advancement that they had experienced happened in the wake of two consecutive world wars. But most of all, they were known for being the most obstinate species in the Federation. From the moment of their joining the Federation as a new client species, they had their own ideas of how the system should work, and were the loudest voice asking for the recognition of client sapiens. For decades, they organized petitions, publicities, and protests, until finally, after only 53 years as a member species, they chose to leave the Federation. Soon after their departure, the Vol High Fleet conveniently tore through their system, consuming all of their worlds. In the decades that followed, the extinction of the humans and the primates called themselves became a cautionary tale warning against those who would rock the boat too much. Conspiracy theories circulated amongst fringe elements that claimed the Council had a hand in the human's extinction actually helped scare the dissidents back into line. As the years marched, the humans faded from public memory. War ignited between the Federation and the Vol Hives. Federation citizens suffered death, displacement, and scarcity. Aid poured in from the galactic community at large, and the Vol was condemned in unison. By the end of the war, the Vol was defeated at the cost of the severe losses on the part of the Federation. The client species bearing the brunt. The Council military-industrial complex meanwhile grew exponentially, with most defense contractors turning record profits by the end. Coincidentally, several species that were expected to achieve sapience by the next century experienced complete economic collapse, if not societal collapse. 300 years after human extinction, the Quetel, one of the older client races and strong supporters of the status quo, announced achievements of interstellar flight. They were formally accepted into the fold of the Sapient Council. They received lucrative trade deals with the other Sapients. Shortly after, the Council co-opted the humans' old Sapients for All slogan in propaganda campaigns intended to raise client civilization productivity. By the end of the decade, Federation economy was back on track. Half a millennium after the human extinction, a gigantic ship of unidentified make arrived at the Salen system, situated on the edge of Federation space. 
nearby where the humans' home system once was. It broadcasted a single hail. The humans request re-entry into the Federation. Representatives of St. Pitt's Council and the Federation government at large arrived shortly after the system. The Federation learned that while the human worlds really was destroyed by the Vol, a sizable fraction of humankind escaped the destruction in the gigantic vessel that was as much off-world habitat as it was a spaceship. But what was most astonishing about the vessel was that it could not reach superluminal speeds. It was intended to and covered interstellar distances over a centuries-long journey through the void of space. The humans called it a generation ship, a concept that seemed completely insane to the feds. Generations of people spending their entire lives in the deep space, never stepping foot on stable ground. The ship itself was titanic marvel of engineering, with a hull spinning more than a hundred kilometers in length and containing decks upon decks of living quarters, food production modules, fabrication units, power plants, and everything in between. Propulsion was achieved through massive superluminal fusion reactors. It was practically the same sort of ship the humans would have used for intrasystem travel, only exponentially enlarged. Conceptually, not the most imaginative but undeniably impressive in execution. The feds were skeptical, but the truth was right in front of their eyes. Humans, alive, light years away from their homeworld. Even so, the council contended that the intent of the laws to find sapiens was FTL-travel-capable species. The humans contested citing the letter of the law, which mentioned only interstellar flight as a qualifier for sapiens. Federal court got involved, and with the entire galaxy watching, ruled in favor of the humans. Ironically, the law stated interstellar flight, not superluminal flight, only because the council wanted to raise the bar for sapient recognition beyond species capable of short-range superluminal flight. But all the same, while the humans were formally recognized as sapiens, the other sapiens weren't obliged to give them the secret to FDL travel. The humans did not return to the home system. They couldn't, even if they wanted to. Not without journeying for another half millennium. So they roamed the far reaches around Salem, dominion over which they traded for their home system. They became reclusive, rarely interacting with the other Federation species, if at all. The truth was, they had theoretically solved warp travel. Five hundred years was a long time to spend beyond the Council's influence. But it was precisely because of this that they were so reclusive. Being free for so long gave time for introspection and wising them up to the Council's devices. In the shadowy reaches of the asteroid fields and barren moons, they mined, constructed and tested. The Council tried to send spies to meddle with humans' work, but there was only so much they could do against an entire society of recluse, vacuum-sealed and impenetrable habitats and few sapiens at that. In just over a century, the humans created the first working warp drive. A decades later, they had an entire fleet of their habitat ships, all FTL capable. The first thing they did next was to simultaneously visit as many client worlds as they could, and provide the key to superluminal flight. The council followed close on their heels, but could never catch them, not by a long shot. The human ships plunged into deep space, their FTLs taking them months at a time into the vast seas between the stars. Human society had adapted to the void and become true children of the stars. The death of the Council was at hand, the dawn of the Federation. 
was on the horizon. End of story. 1964. Story number one, Dead Zone. Written by I'm the Hype TFS. Humans didn't find their way to space. They were found. And not all who found them would live to regret it. Humanity had nearly reached the point of true space travel, but were so far still confined to their solar system with no means of long-range travel. The probes they'd launched past their boundaries, however, alerted other spacefaring races of their existence. Because there was no solidified organization in place to control the ambitions of the more aggressive races, when potential competitors emerged, there was nothing to stop them from trying to either destroy or subjugate them before they could become a real threat. This time around, it was the Raxen who laid claim to the new race, positioning a fleet outside of humanity's solar system to prevent interference while they sent in a small force to scout the humans. They found a species in near-constant conflict with itself, and this observation led to a fatal mistake. The Raxen formed a plan to subjugate the humans by disguising themselves as uplifters who wanted to elevate the species onto the galactic stage. They sought to undermine any slim chance of unity by sending representatives in secret to the rulers of the most powerful countries and pretending that they wanted to work solely with them. The idea was to trick them into believing they wanted their country to rule Earth with their help because they had seen they were the most capable. But they did not consider just how deep the conflicts went between the Earth's nations and how many spies had been planted into high positions in the governments of rival countries. So their plans were immediately exposed as information passed from nation to nation regarding the deceptive offers, and the world's leaders slowly began reaching out to each other, forming previously unthinkable alliances and bonds with the sole goal of removing these invaders from their planet and making use of everything they had brought with them. It was an era of unprecedented cooperation. For a time, the nations acted as if they didn't know they were being tricked using it as a time to understand how the alien's technology worked, and more importantly, how to reverse-engineer it. In secret, the humans began assimilating their new knowledge and adapting their own technology, advancing science by several hundred years in the course of only half a decade. They played host to the Raxen, stalled and extended deadlines by feigning ignorance and playing into their obvious sense of superiority, and placated them with admiring smiles and lavish events. The Raxen were lulled deeply into a false sense of security, and when the humans were finally ready to execute their plans, they were caught completely off guard. A meeting of the UN was called, and the Raxen were led to believe that their respective nations would be using the assembly to declare their intent to take over the planet and take them into space. The invaders couldn't have hoped for more perfect scenario, allowing them to sit back and watch as humanity used their new technologies to destroy each other further so that they could come in and take over in the aftermath. But as soon as the assembly was called to order, the Raxen suddenly lost all contact with all personnel and ships on and around Earth. Stunned and confused, they sent more ships in, but as soon as they approached the planet, they too disappeared off their senses, and no one could be reached in any form of communication. Next, they sent in a fully armed battalion, thinking, that even if the humans could block outside contact and take out their scouting ships, they wouldn't be able to compete on equal footing with combat-oriented vessels. Yet, all that followed was silence. 
Earth had become a dead zone that nothing could get close to without seemingly vanishing and falling forever silent. And what the Raxen truly found ominous was that each time they sent ships in, they would vanish earlier and earlier. The dead zone was expanding. A full year later, and the Raxan pulled their forces away from the solar system, having lost too many ships and people without knowing why or how to justify further effort. Perhaps, if they poured in the entirety of their fleet, they could finally overwhelm and crush humanity. But the last year had sapped their courage. The silence ate away at them. The complete absence of information from friend or foe disturbed them on a level they couldn't quite understand. The uncertainty of which these humans were using the Stead Zone as a shield or a lure plagued their military leaders and divided opinion. When the Raxen finally left, the Dead Zone had expanded to cover its entire solar system. But of course, those who hadn't experienced it wouldn't know its ominous terror. So others came and went. They sent ships that they would never hear from again. They sent weapons that would never be fired. They sent people who would never report back. This went on for ten years. After that period of time, the solar system, as it would later be known, was given a wide berth and treated like the home of a dreadful monster. Ships wouldn't so much as approach its border as if fearing the horror living there might reach out and drag them into the inky blackness. Humanity became the boogeyman of the galaxy, even though they hadn't even taken the first steps outside their solar system. The other races feared what they didn't understand. They feared the unknown variable that lurked within that black hole of deafening silence. The utter absence of anything when senses scanned it screamed at the most primal part of their beings to run and hide from this dark abyss. It preyed on the most basic, primordial fear of any species, the fear of the dark. And it was even more severe because they knew it wasn't irrational. Something lurked in that dark. Something made sure those who stepped inside never made it back out. Humanity, the beast that called the darkness home. So they formed bonds, established treaties and pacts, and reached out to friends and rivals alike to prepare for the day that humanity stepped out the dark and entered the galaxy. The terror of a race that hadn't even been capable of leaving their system ten years prior, and still had yet to leave, had inspired the establishment of the Galactic Alliance. No one dared to aim a sensor directly at the Sol system, feeling like if they stared too long or too closely into the abyss, that it would begin to stare back at them. So they kept just at the edge of their range, just close enough that they would detect something, anything, leaving or entering. Right on the periphery of their vision, where all monsters lurked. And one day, something moved, just outside the corner of their eye. They detected a beacon as it drifted out of the darkness, the technology displaying characteristics of several different species, but in a wholly unique construction and melded together seamlessly. It was as if the best parts of the similar technologies had been extracted, combined, and further improved. But more important than the implications of the beacon itself was the message it beamed out to the galaxy. It was a video featuring a single human male in a military uniform, the epitome of what the humans referred to as a grizzled war veteran. One of his arms had been replaced by a bulky prosthetic that looked designed for combat, and one of his eyes had an unnatural glint to it. His gaze was cold and steely as he glared into the camera. We are here and we are ready. 
If you want peace and have the courage to come meet us, our ambassadors will hear you out. But this message is for anyone out there who gets the idea of trying to kill or oppress us again. Know that whatever part or portion of your forces that reaches into our territory is lost to you the moment it enters. In other words, if you decide you want war with humanity, the only question you have to ask yourself is... What part of you are you willing to give us? End of story. Story number two. Prey, not always harmless. Written by Fred Lowe. Beginning playback. Title screen. Prey, not always harmless. Title screen fades, showing a human in blue overalls and a plaid shirt, sitting in a wooden rocking chair with a rabbit in his lap and a goat on his side. Cute, aren't they? Some prey animals can be so sweet, but not all of them. Hello, I'm William Smith. You may know me from such informational films such as Death World is not as bad as you think and never allow an engineer to remain bored for too long. In this ever-evolving galaxy, there has been a standout evolutionary constant. A significant majority of the known species evolved from various prey animals. Not counting predators, plant and hive species, prey species count for 90% of those known. However, that just because some have evolved from prey doesn't mean that they are powerless against others. Oftentimes, they only have to look for the reasons they manage to maintain their superiority. They may have developed certain physical attributes or learn how to make tools early in their development that allow for their continual survival and evolution. And still, some managed a form of somewhat symbiotic relationship with their would-be predators and came out the better for it. But there have been a couple that were lifted to sentience. The lepers, for example, are not only extremely cunning, but their strong legs and excellent hearing allow them to avoid direct conflict, resorting to a more guerrilla-style combat that made use of their speed and agility. The loxodos learn how to herd themselves and use their massive trunks as bludgeons against threats. The gallus would make themselves appear much larger than they were in an attempt to scare the predators themselves. Others managed to figure out ways to avoid their predators. The servant developed a form of camouflage and created natural traps to deal with their main predators. The Kamai developed a skin that allowed them to blend in with their surroundings, and their natural stillness would cause their predators to not take notice of them. These traits can often be seen in the species today in the way that they fight. The leper's warrior cast hit hard and fast in combat, then retreat before the next strike. The loxodo often swarm in mass, similar to some hive species. The gallus will make themselves appear stronger than they really are, with fake weaponry on their persons and ships. The surfeit can lie in wait for their perfect moment to strike, and the kamai are known for their stealthy tactics in combat. So while the spray species might seem to be simple to defeat, one must only look at how they developed to know that not all prey are harmless. Keep that in mind as you travel the vast galaxy. Please join me next time for Galactic Buffet Etiquette. How not to worry. Scene fades to white as a logo of serpentine humanoid technician Tulin had near a device with the words brought to you in part by Squamate Shielding will keep you safe before fading to black. End playback. End of story. 1965. Phase Drives, written by Speedhump23. The phase fuel drives were discovered by accident in the late 2030s. 
Unlike TV's hyper or warp drives, a phage drive generated a field around your transport. This then allowed you to accelerate the field and its contents to super light speeds in real space. Inside the field, nothing seems to happen. Passengers do not notice any effects. In effect, you mount the drive on your ship, activate the field and envelop your ship, aim and hit go. After a very short time, you turn the drive off and the field stops. Combined with the new fusion battery, space opened up to humanity. Early exploration was hampered by the drives being too good. For example, aim for Pluto, taking into account where it actually is based on speed of light, and accidentally end up in the Oort cloud. In the next hundred years, humans managed to colonize most of their solar system, putting bases or stations around all major bodies. The phase drive could be adjusted to sizes from up to big enough to take a few aircraft carriers with you, with room to spare, down to a small motorbike. The new field cancels inertia inside the area, and the air trapped inside the field for surface launches was normally enough for the passengers to breathe on even the longest strips to date. The phase drive is almost as good as teleporting over short distances. The shuttle to the Mars main dome landing pad is a small phase drive mounted on a normal passenger wagon, with seats for 10 people and space for luggage. The time from Earth to Mars is less than a second, so you barely even have time to blink before you are there. Early pilots were rather worried about the effects of traveling through something with such high speeds. Luckily, space is rather sparse, and their chance of hitting something rarely comes up. As a precaution, all flight paths were routed through a clear space. It has not been an issue, so far. At least, it wasn't until one fool of a pilot with a phase drive attached to his new Gulfstream and tried to fly to Mima space orbiting Saturn. It was discovered that he had not updated his orbitals, updates the positions of objects in near and far space, resulting in his Gulfstream passing through Iapetus, another moon orbiting Saturn. That fact only realized when the local traffic controller scanned his plane landing at the dome. After a few moments of careful testing by the UN and various multi-system companies, it was discovered that the phase drive could move through astral bodies, planets, moons, oort belts, suns, etc., at such high speed that the molecules of two objects did not have time to react. Once again, the scientists declared that it was effectively teleporting. As there seemed to be no matter-v-matter reactions while an object was in phase, this made transport to space stations and planet domes much simpler. You could land inside the dome instead of landing on a pad, then hurry inside while the field is still up. After the various groups agreed that the maths and it was peer-reviewed, they published the joint study in the latest edition of Nature. Most of the scientists involved thought the maths and science would be too far over the normal reader's head, as they had barely managed to understand it themselves. Fortunately, someone actually read the full article and understood it. This would not be an issue for a while, though. About half a year later, bright flash was seen in the Oort Belt. This flash was the brightest light source ever seen at Pluto Base, and many cameras were blinded by the flash. As a result, the urgent reports from Pluto, various science groups traveled out to the approximate area and discovered an expanding hole in the area. The spread out dust and debris cloud was rather thin here, but you could still detect the remains of several hour old expanding shockwave pushing things away. Having measured the speed, force, size and shockwave of the flash, the assorted scientists suggested that it was probably a small particle of antimatter which hit some real matter. Where it came from was unknown. But many people expressed thanks to the Oort cloud had not intercepted the particle first. The small fleet of scientists in their phase labs prepared to return to the various university stations that they had traveled from.
The phase labs were nothing really more than space station habitats with phase drives attached, allowed the scientists to pop out to almost anywhere and have a full lab and secure environment with them. As was standard practice, the phase drives were spooled up on each ship and the labs leave an order of distance to travel. The two labs heading back to Earth were going to be the first to return, followed by the Mars lab and the Belt one. Moments after the phase drive had powered up the phase field, and seconds before it was heading home, something hit the side of the lab. Luckily, the other labs had spooled their fields up and were just waiting for their turn to leave, so the resulting explosion did not do more than just push them a few AU from their location. The inertial dampening effects of the phase drive saved everyone from being turned into thinly spread red jam inside their ships. The lab hit by the object received enough energy to almost push it halfway to Pluto's orbit. The onboard computers had thought that the phase drive had malfunctioned and followed procedure and intensified the inertial fields and locked the lab into place while they tried to work out what happened. With the various scientists all trying to work out what had happened, the pilots of the labs, yes, they were still called pilots, even if many did not count as real flying, followed the procedures and moved away from the accident-slash-incident zone and conferred. The labs were the best thing to use for this sort of incident. They had more scanners than even they could ever use. Deploying several of their remote scanners, drones, to their previous locations, the pilots wanted to keep their shield up. The telltale traces of antimatter were soon discovered. Two particles of antimatter being in the same area were very unlikely, so maybe something was throwing them off. It was the Balter pilot who suggested some drones be reconfigured, and their phase fields expanded to maximum diameter and overlapped to form the shield for this area. Each drone field would be able to stretch a few hundred kilometers, and the dozen or so they had spare would be able to stay on site for a week or so before needing to phase back to base to restock fuel. Knowing they needed to lock them in place may reduce their life on site to a week. The refuel and redeploy stage would only take an hour there and back. No sooner had the first shield been deployed than one of them flared greatly with an antimatter hit. Over the next few weeks, it was discovered that an antimatter particle hit the same area every three days. Moving a shield remote outwards by one AU resulted in them being able to approximate the speed of particles, which is slightly slower than the speed of light. As a precaution, one of the labs took a shield drone and traced the path sunward to see if any particles had slipped past. They discovered about 50 of them in solid line heading straight for the sun. After getting ahead of them, the lab proceeded to set up a shield in its path, and jumped it back outwards to intercept each particle, in turn. Several suggestions on how to capture them for study were considered. One idea, to polarize an area in front of the shield to bounce the particle back, produced an interesting finding. The bounce particle hit the next one, and they both stopped dead in space. Some scientists suggested that this is rather odd, as it implied that they were traveling on the exact opposite courses and had exactly the same anti-mass. Speculation was postponed when the next particle hit them, and they proceeded to then hit the magnetic shield, bouncing back along the line of travel. While the scientists were debating what would happen when the antimatter particles hit their source, the computer was showing more and more particles being added to the clump of antimatter as it was bounced back to deep space. Not only were the group of particles heading back out when they hit the shield, but the mass of them coming back in was sometimes accelerated by particles hitting them back to help push. After a few weeks of the trampoline antimatter circus, the delay between when the clump of antimatter hit the shield and was bounced back got longer and longer.
After another month, while waiting for the clump to return, there was a massive flash of light, which burnt out many of the scanners and woke up a rather poor technician left behind to monitor the shields. Working out the rough distance that the explosion took place, a phage drone was sent to have a look. Passing through the shockwave while in phase, the drone made it near the center of the blast. There was nothing there, just a rapidly expanding ball of particles. The various scans undertaken by the drone were enlightening enough. There were traces of refined materials in the dust cloud. The speculation was that whatever the antimatter clump hit must have been partially shielded from the antimatter, but still taken up by the explosion. Understandably, the scientists were a bit alarmed. Their original speculation was this was a rare natural event and nothing to worry about. As the new phase shields were stopping the antimatter cold, now it was discovered that the source was not natural. A system governments agreed to send all the AI scout drones available out towards a few dozen or so nearby systems in a more or less straight line from Seoul to the destroyed ship, towards distant systems, to see if they were inhabited. While pilot ships and special AI scout drones had been used to explore nearby systems for a while, the number of habitable planets found so far had slowed the process. As exploring planets and solar systems still took time and money, even with near instantaneous travel. When the drone dropped out of phase at the edge of the 15th system in its own projected list, the scanners went wild. They were very weak, obviously artificial, transmissions bouncing around inside the system. The drone's program told it the next step. It started phasing in and out of the entire system, doing a standard new system scan. Once it had explored the entire system, it phased back to Sol system via a dozen other empty waypoints. The next visit to this system would not be a simple drone. End of story. 1966 Hold the Line, written by Maurice Thet Humanity could not have been found at a worse moment in galactic history. The Galactic Alliance, the foremost power in the Milky Way, hadn't seen a galactic-scale war in 4,000 years before the discovery of two small but developed systems in their border territory. The worlds existed on a newly discovered hyperlane, one nearly undetectable through normal means, that had direct access to the core territories. The Tyraxi Empire would jump on the opportunity immediately should they discover a new weakness. It had been humiliating for the GA diplomats to greet these new players in the game, something that should have met with galactic-wide celebration, and asked them to prepare for war if they wanted to survive. The humans, an abnormally tall bipedal race, with generally genial attitudes, were blissfully understanding of the situation. War does not come when it is desired. For the true of heart, we will prepare. Those had been the words of the human ambassador to the GA Council. True to their words, the human interstellar conglomerate, or INCON, militarized at an astounding pace, comforting the member states of the Alliance, who now had to crack their defenses. Four years into the war, INCON began to provide a constant stream of crucial medical supplies to the rest of the Alliance. INCON earned the nickname Ten Angels after the Ten Human Worlds from various troops of the 22 other member states of the Alliance. Six years into the war, INCON had started to expand using GA tech, allowing relief for the now heavily militarized human population. Not a single soldier came from INCON space, though they had offered because the GA figured they knew what was coming. The lingering suspicion came true. 
as when the forces of the Galactic Alliance were pushed to their lowest point in likely recorded history. The Tyrexi found the Hyperlane. FTL communications could only be done in rare circumstances. The process involved was expensive as all hell. So only three messages were ever sent between the Alliance and Incon High Command. Message to Incon High Command. You have been found. We are coming with reinforcements. Hold the line! Understood. A desperate scrambling of reserved forces was sent towards Incon space. But then the capital fleet of the Tyrexi materialized in the home system of the Chitan, a hive mine that provided the main industrial force of the Alliance. The High Queen was under threat, and the threat needed to be redirected. Reinforcements are stalled. Status report. The line is held. The Alliance High Command developed the same mind as their troops. Ten angels indeed. Chidan was defended, at brutal cost to the Alliance. The time it would take to repair and mobilize the forces wasn't small, but in an emergency, the damaged ships would be sent anyway. Human exports had entirely stopped, soon after the Jadan incident, so another message was sent. Incon Space, status report. The line is held. Send support soon. That was the only time Incon Command had ever asked anything of the Alliance, which worried Command. The fleet was repaired and promptly sent to the inadvisable speed towards the Ten Angels. When they reached Incon Space, one Angel was left. The Alliance Reserve fleets didn't notice anything wrong at first. Then they noticed that they didn't notice anything at all. That was the point where Mounting Horror entered the officers' minds. By the time they made it to Alpha Centauri, finding nothing but dead worlds and wrecked fleets and space debris, even the engineers deep in the bowels of the Alliance ships knew that hold the line meant something very, very different to humanity. When the fleet entered the Sol system, they were nearly destroyed at the debris of the entire Taraxi war fleet blocking their path. Holy crap, this is bigger than the capital fleet. This is multiple fleets, actually. It's at least 20% of all Tyrexi forces floating here. That was the direct quote from the bridge officer aboard the Xanatar capital ship of the reserve fleet. The moons of Jupiter, destroyed. The moons of Saturn, destroyed. Mars, destroyed. Luna, destroyed. When the fleet finally drifted towards Terra, many wept to see the city lights dot the planet. More wept when scans revealed the sheer number of enemy war vessels crashed into the planet. Local comms. GA. Terran Command, what happened here? I see. We held the line! GA, why did you not request support sooner? I see. Frankly, Admiral, by the time we knew we needed support, we knew it wasn't going to arrive on time to help us. The most you could have done was know that we were dying. All of our requests would have done would be to have destroyed morale. That was a fair explanation, though most aboard did not accept the answer lightly. They would have done something, right? The first ship to enter Sol after the reserve fleet arrived was a singular Tyrexi vessel, painted in white, a distinctly human sign of peace. A universal encoded message marked the side of its hull. The Terrans have been a foe too great for the Tyrexi. May their honor live on for all history, for they have earned our undying respect. We offer peace. Our fight is over. The Tyrexi were a strictly war-based empire, but the Tyrexi were also an honorable people, with an incredibly strict moral code. They did not wipe out species. They conquered them. 
humanity was not a race content with being conquered. 30% of the Kaldari forces had met their end in Incon space. The massive network of human defense satellites mixed with the younger race's willingness to sacrifice the planet for a cause had created a killing field for the Terexi. Tactically, it made no sense to combine attacking their world after the first two fleets had been eliminated, but Kaldari psychology demanded they eliminate the greatest perceived threats first. The Tyrexi defeat came at the cost of roughly 80% of the human population, though this wasn't intentional on the Tyrexi part. Eventually, inspiring a genuine apology from said empire, humanity just simply didn't give a feck. Our planet was held to the very end, until orbital battles led to debris taking out the artificial biospheres that terraform human planets. Earth had been much more sturdy, but the fragile ecosystems of the world's humanity weren't native to broke quickly without constant maintenance. The shortest answer for the 60 billion lost lives boiled down to a very, very unfortunate position. This does not stop the outrage amongst the Galactic Alliance population. Rage spread like wildfire. The idea that the GA had so profoundly failed to defend the first new member race in eons, whether or not it was their fault. Many politicians and war personnel were funneled into retirement, where many claimed that humanity hadn't asked for help. Others argued that they shouldn't have had to in the first place. Terra stood alone, so you will stand alone. That chant was thrown at generals and admirals who claimed that they were only ever acting in the member states' best interests. To the galaxy's extreme chagrin, the only assistance Incarn asked for was help regarding ecological reclamation, at which the Terexi were very willing to assist them in, the Empire feeling as though they had found the only worthy enemy in the galaxy. The GA gave a token opposition to the humans accepting the help from the now geopolitical enemy, but the human position was that they weren't in a position to deny help from anyone. The desolation of Sol, which the travesty was eventually named would be a talking point in political discussions for thousands of years. The galaxy having a long memory, humanity would take nearly two centuries to recover. Though it seemed they never gave blame to anyone for their situation. What the population of the GA didn't understand was that humanity, like the Tyrexi, who had devastated them, understood war. They understood the lengths a nation would go to for victory. War being a much more recent memory for a race than the GA at large. Many humans considered it a devaluation of the defense they offered to talk down the lack of defenders in the system. In simple words from the new human ambassador, We held the line, that's all that matters to us, and all that matters to the Tyrexi who now help us rise again. You did not fail us, we simply did our duty to the war. We don't regret success. I guess all I ask is that you always remember my first words here. And so, it was remembered. Humanity held the line. End of story. 1967. Accidental Black Speech, written by Nettle Queen. Yulo glanced out the viewport of the pleasant curves of the diplomatic vessel that carried the ambassador of the recently contacted species. With a thought flick, she activated the screen wall and brought up the data about these humans. Their people's biology was compatible enough that they could meet in person. She would need supplemental oxygen, but it was simple enough to carry some. 
and their psychology seemed compatible as well. Humans put an emphasis on the story where Ularians leaned more towards overviews. But when some complementary personalities collaborated, the poetry and fiction they had already emerged from the limited bandwidth chats of the FTL com exchanges promised a social revolution of the most pleasant kind. Her eyes tracked over the basic line, drawing that sketch to male and female variants. They were almost amusingly long-legged. Their back limbs made up almost half of their modest height, though everything else was more or less average. Bilateral symmetry, internal support structure, digestive and reproduction. Two specialized manipulator limbs, comically small when compared to their legs. Usually, broad-colored vision balanced by lack of thermal and polarized vision, hearing, touch, taste, smell all within standard deviations. Though their sense of proprioception and environmental awareness was nearly as good as hers, a gift of their tree-dwelling ancestors. She flipped to an anatomical cutaway out of idle curiosity. Their breathing and eating shared a single tube to a degree, and she wondered how they weren't constantly fishing food out of their lungs. If she ever got into a conversation with a mythic literalist, Right there was plenty of proof that either the creators were bad at design or non-existent as far as she was concerned. Giving herself a shake, she brought her mind back to the business and flicked to the cultural and psychological section. Her human contemporary was from the relatively warm and very dry climate, a member of one of the larger cultural families that was from a place called Middle East, the name of which made her laugh. East of what? She shook her head at that, a little bit of in linguistic slaveness. Globes didn't exactly have edges to be east of, and their world didn't have a supercontinent. It was good to see that kind of holdover from pre-technology societies. It implied a thread of tradition and stable culture that was sadly rare in the galaxy. People were too eager to throw away the old before asking if the new was substantially better. Though she flicked to the historical timeline and granted, Maybe a little too stable. It had taken them half again the average amount of time from the first powered flight to get a permanent settlement off planet and figure out the skip drive. Ah well. Their history was rich and interesting and shockingly well documented if the size of the subfolder has anything to go by. And her classmates who focused on archaeology and sociology had nearly fainted with joy when they got their hands on that data. She flicked again and reviewed the gestures that were used to start a polite meeting, starting with inclining her upper body with her hands clasped in front of her and going on to how her ears could be used to assist in communication where her face could not, as well as the facial expressions that she would need to understand. The translation of traditional greetings in his culture had been a pleasant surprise. Peace be on you was a lovely way to start relating with someone as far as she was concerned and she was hopeful that it was a sign of things to come. The whistle of her alarm brought her back to the real world, and she shook her tail to fluff it back up. It wouldn't do to greet a new people with bed fur. She put on her beaded skull cap and vest, gave her cheeks a quick brush, and settled her supplemental oxygen tube in place, tucking it discreetly against her neck and behind her nose fringe. A sharp tap against the door made her jump, and she greeted her colleague with an annoyed buff. You couldn't be a little less jarring. I don't need to be on an adrenaline rush. Ura's ears went back and he tossed his head apologetically. His freshly polished horn sparkling even in the artificial light. Sorry, I wanted to be sure you heard me. 
The human ambassador is arriving in ten decabeats, and I wanted to make sure that we all had time to prepare. The whole team, I mean. Yes, yes, I'm ready to go. Yulu patted the small bag with the oxygen canister meaningfully, and Ural nodded. Once everyone was together, they went over the slides of different human expressions, both linguistic and facial, and quickly refreshed their memories on the points of human psychology that had given everyone the most trouble. Thanks to Ares' excellent scheduling, everything wrapped up a full decabeat before the human ambassador arrived, and the diplomatic team seemed in good spirits as they strolled to the greeting room. Almost as soon as the door closed, Yulo's hand twitched upwards before she brought it under control. Nervous grooming was not the way to greet the new ambassador. Exhale, hold. Inhale, hold. Exhale. The old exercises taught to everyone who went into social field calmed her enough that the normal but currently unwelcome Ularian stress response was controllable. The air exchange began and everyone turned on their oxygen. With a soft word, the door to the human delegation opened, and they laid eyes on each other for the first time. She presumed that a man in front of her was the opposite number and studied him closely. She knew his name was Omar, but nothing else. He had a neatly trimmed black and grey fringe under his jaw rather than his nose, and his bare skin was a medium brown, though only his face and hands were bare. His head was covered in a skull cap with white twisted cloth and the rest covered in flowing tube of pale fabric that went to the floor, and a long dark vest over that. She blinked, then saw that his arms were sheathed separately as he brought his hands towards his ears in the Ularian gesture of welcome. An excellent start, she thought, as she bowed in the human style. Peace be on you, she said, pausing to let the translator VI work its magic. The words were, of course, unintelligible, not that she was paying attention to the sounds when she had the person try to read, but the man's mouth curved upwards in an easily recognizable expression of pleasure. Hand on to you, peace. May you feel the sun. His voice came through the VI as a middle tone masculine. And may you feel not the rain, she replied, completing the formal Lyrian greeting. This was going splendidly. She felt someone rapidly flicking her tail and glanced behind her. Hurrah gave her a look that she hadn't seen since the shoal attempted to kidnap and eat their team, and when she glanced at the other five, she saw that everyone else was wearing similar expressions. Bewildered, she glanced at the group of humans across the room. They were all making no aggressive moves, only exchanging looks and subtle gestures amongst themselves. She flicked her tail decisively, silently telling everyone to keep their concerns until later. There was no immediate danger, and they could wait until the greeting was over to discuss any issues. The man's eye tufts descended slightly, and then she heard it, interwoven with the gentle rise and fall of speech were cracks and hisses that sent instinctive jolts of fear down her tail. She barely collected her thoughts quickly enough to catch the VI translation. Is there something wrong? It wasn't her proudest moment, but she froze. How can a living creature make noises like that? A few tens of moments too late, she pulled herself together. No, there is nothing wrong, though, uh... Her eyes searched his for a moment, though what he was looking for she could not say. I'm very sorry, but there is no polite way to phrase this, though I truly mean no offense. Your language is unsettling to Ularian. As the translated words scored across the ears like knives, Uro's nerves broke and he slowly edged backwards towards the door. Omar seemed to rock backwards in, surprise perhaps, and his eyes darted from side to side. When he opened his mouth, she braced herself. I'm sorry for your pain, 
he said, more quietly than before. She appreciated the attempt, but it didn't help much. What can I do? If you're going to steal one dragon egg, you might as well try for ten. Sounds of cracking and hissing are grating and make us instinctively afraid. Are there words in your language? Do, do not use them. No. She tilted her head in confusion. La was a perfectly normal sounding word. That was... Oh. She interrupted herself mid-word. You mean that not enough words to be useful? Yes. Nam. A weird but harmless word. Well, at least they could communicate to a degree, even if it was one-sided. One of the humans coughed and said something too quietly for the microphone to pick up, which resulted in a flurry of discussion before another one of the group stepped up. This one dressed in a similar way to the man, but without a wrapped cloth skullcap. Yulo suspected this one was female based on her narrow jaw and lack of fringe. Her voice came through as middle-high feminine, and the words she spoke were nearly oddly buzzy rather than torturous. Is this better? Yes, thank you. Yulo's ears and tail flicked and swirled in gladness that the mission wasn't a complete failure. To the United Nations Diplomatic Corps. From First Contact Team. Subject, First Meeting, Ularian Nations. Attachment, Ularian Fear Response and Suggested Remedies. Body. The First Contact Meeting was a success, though that success was largely due to the graciousness of both the Ularian diplomats and Ambassador Omar's and Diplomat Fatima's tactful handling. The Ularians have a response to voiceless fricatives that mirrors that of the human response to nails on a chalkboard, though it seems somewhat stronger. Thanks to Fatima's ability to speak basic Mandarin, the rough start was smoothed over and continual relations established. It is strongly suggested that any diplomat or ambassador to the Ularians be a fluent speaker of a language that uses the sounds K, S, K, Ch, F, and T seldomly, or not at all, provided such a language exists or can be constructed. End of story. 1968 Story number one. Luna Fall, written by K. Cern. Ask a human, any human, and they will tell you exactly where they were when Luna fell. When the cold white surface cracked apart and Earth's solitary sister came raining down. It doesn't matter if they were Earth-born or from some distant, nameless colony amongst the dark. Even Earth's most vocal detractors wept silent tears when they heard the news. New to the galactic stage, rising stars, our future looked bright. It is said that those below knew they had no time to escape, staring up into the sky, knowing your time had come. Some panic, some riots ignited here and there, but most simply returned to their homes to be with their loved ones. Messages of love and hope were sent forth from the people of Earth to those distant brothers and sisters amongst the stars. They were humanity's future now, and they carried with them the dreams of the world. Earth may be gone, but humanity carries on. But without Earth, Sol had no way to feed itself, her colonies too far and too small to provide. The domed science cities of Mars became dusty tombs. The great shipyards of Titan fell silent, and the colonies of the Belt and beyond twinkled out, one by one. The Council sent aid, then great vessels to carry the refugees to distant worlds. But refugees are not cheap to feed. The Council declared, humanity must work to earn its keep. We worked, but we were never able to escape our death. Humanity's remaining leaders demanded an explanation. 
What had caused such a terrible tragedy to befall them? An accident, the council investigators found, caused by hubris. The humans mined too deep, too greedily, and caused their beloved satellite to crack apart. There was no time for aid to arrive to prevent the pieces from falling prey to Earth's gravity. No time to prevent the tragic fate of the human homeworld. A tragic loss. We were not convinced. Scattered amongst the stars, fractured, lost, rumors spread amongst humanity. Rumors of a ship seen leaving the lunar surface just moments before its first moonquake struck. Grainy images whispered about evidence buried in the vaults of Mars. It wasn't a human ship, they whispered, when the Taurinian shift leaders were out of earshot. An elder race vessel, they whispered, when the Kurang ship captains were elsewhere. A new home has been found. Come and join us. Slowly at first, a dreckle so small spread out over so long that none seemed to notice it. The humans vanished. When the lack of human labor was finally noticed, the council shrugged. It was not so unusual for a race to wither and die out after their home world was lost. Humanity had been hard workers, but ultimately insignificant. There were always more workers. They do not understand us. They have bloodied us, and they have not destroyed us. Humanity is not gone, whispered the Noodlian miners. A secret world beyond the fringe, whispered the Rebexi plant operators. They were returned, whispered the Kyrie pleasure workers. The stories of lower sapiens, the council declared these whispers, as they beat any they heard spreading them. The humans were gone. Their system taken as compensation for the council's efforts. We are not gone. We do not forget. We do not forgive for Luna, for Earth. I have returned from the human worlds, from their unified stellar nations, their commonwealth of stars, and their sole reclamation republic. I have seen the wonders they have built, the worlds they have transformed, and I have seen the shipyards preparing for war. I have returned at their behest, to bring this message before the council. Please, view the recordings they provided. They will show I speak the truth. The humans have not gone quietly into the dark as we believed. They have survived, and they are coming. Extract from Prisoner Interrogation, number 0008967. Prisoner Executed. End of story. Story number two. On my death day, written by the Lost Time Lord. We thought humanity was dangerous. We were so wrong. Immense effort was put into keeping humans out of trouble as they spread out across the galaxy. Nonetheless, they found it anyway. I was actually there the day it happened. I was a liaison support officer for the Human Expeditionary Force. In fact, one might even say part of this was my fault. I cleared the humans for landing on what I believed to be a desolate but mineral-rich moon. I was wrong. As was protocol, an unnamed reconnaissance drone was launched from the dropship before the expeditionary team disembarked. The drone showed no signs of life. There was no signs of habitation, but it found precious metals, alloys in abundance, which cost millions per gram to produce in the fusion mills. So much wealth. I was greedy. I didn't know what it would cost when I landed the drone and cleared them to make landfall. Now, I understand what humans mean when they jokingly say what could possibly go wrong. 
Everything, everything could go wrong. If I could make a bargain with the universe, if I could do what the humans are capable of now, I would trade anything, everything, for the chance to go back and tell the humans they cannot land on Uror. The first human boot struck the surface of the desolate moon. It shook and fled. Energy burst from every crevice. The planet came alive. The readings were off the charts. Life signs pinging so numerous my scanners only displayed nines. And then its alert siren set off a single flatline beep before it ceased function altogether. The ground rumbled and a deafening roar shook the atmosphere. I suddenly understood. All the precious metals, all the rare alloys, the impossible compositions, they were part of a prison. And the humans had opened the door when we landed. A voice spoke in a language I do not know, and I hope never to hear again. I could, by some ancient magic, I could understand it. The voice praised the humans for finally orchestrating the reunion of man and fate. They were old allies, older than any civilization that stands today. Of course, fate had always been with mankind. It's how they survived upon the death world like Earth. But the universe had never seen fate with man, not like it would be from now on. I watched in helpless terror as fate offered itself to humanity. It offered to be their ever-present companion. Fate asked only one thing in return. It wanted to take humanity into itself when they entered the void. Perhaps fate would will its ranks for a purpose beyond mortal comprehension. I will never know. Still, that's all it asked and turned. Give oneself over to fate and let it take one on one's glorious death day. And fate would give one anything, everything. I'm running out of breathable atmosphere and I do not believe my life pod will make it to the nearest habitable world. I fled the moment the humans accepted the offer. I jettisoned a life pod and I never looked back. Now, as my own death day approaches, I send this warning, hoping someone will hear my last words, hoping, beyond hope, that my message will help make up for my colossal mistake. When they come for you, remember humans are not dangerous. They are so, so much worse. Now, that they are immortal. End of story. Story number three. Humans are surprisingly good at throwing faster. Written by Satable. If you're looking to break something impenetrable, use a bigger gun, projectile thrower. Quote from a human warrior. Humans are good at throwing things. They play by throwing spheres, discs, spheres and other shaped items at each other or at a target. But this is about military history. Humans will always find a way to throw a heavier, faster thing. Humans are a hunter species. They evolved getting their energy from killing other life. It started with rocks in their hand, good enough for small animals. But then they made what they called spears, sharpened sticks, that they could throw faster and more accurately. But the arm wasn't good enough anymore, so they used a longer arm by cutting a branch that could hold the spear and throw it even faster, making it capable of easily killing creatures as big or as even bigger than them. Then they made the bow, a string holding a springy branch in tension, that string being pulled and throwing the spear when released. It gave precision and faster reaction. As human civilization became more developed, conflicts between themselves for territory led to the construction of defenses and throwing big rocks at those defenses using trebuchets and catapults, one of which is basically a huge bow that is put on wheels and uses an arm similar to a spear thrower's 
to throw big rocks. The other one uses weight for the same effect. They discovered that explosions can throw stuff, so they put explosive powder in a tube, added what they wanted to throw in it, and lined it up, throwing the thing at high speed. They didn't discover anti-grav, so when they wanted to explore space, they just basically pointed a huge gun filled with a slower and longer-lasting combustible towards Earth and threw the barrel alongside whatever they did want to throw. They did take that from trying, and later succeeding, to throw explosives at each other from far away. While I've been glossing over the improvements of each weapon, and skipping some, such as blowguns, slingshots, and other stone-slinging devices, crossbows and ballistas are just bow variants, but you can search those terms if you're interested. The guns are what they focused on improving the most, responding to heavier armor with bigger guns up to making ones that could throw small asteroids using an atom bomb as propellant. But when everyone learned the meaning of there's always a bigger gun, is when they covered a tenth of their star in mirrors and set half the small moon on fire to accelerate at a quarter of the speed of light towards a planet of a species that threatened to put them into slavery. We learned that planet-cracking weapons were possible, and while it took 16 years for the moon to reach the planet, it's not like you can move a planet out of the way, or make a moon change course in that short of a time. All the population was evacuated, but it's not like you can find a new planet like that. It seems humans knew that, and they gladly offered to help. They needed any workers they could get to terraform a second planet in their system. When a way to transport matter at FTL was found by just colliding black holes fast, and saying, turns out we only needed to throw bigger and faster, no one in the galaxy was surprised to learn that it was the humans who did it. End of story. 1969 Friend Turned Foe Written by I Am The Hype TFS The human ambassador lounged in his chair. From his posture, any observer could have been forgiven for thinking that he was merely a member of the audience rather than a key figure of this tribunal but the glares of the High Justices quickly dispelled any notions of that. The accused will be given time to speak. Use it wisely. Thank you. Now shut up, the Ambassador retorted, smiling at the flustered sputtering he triggered in the Justice before continuing without giving any of them a chance to interrupt. Code 56785, subsection 285D10 of the Federation Tribunal Codex more commonly referred to as the hangman's noose. The accused will be enabled and empowered to speak wholly uninterrupted during the time of their testimony, free from constraint of topic or order. Funny thing about that little addition to the legal code for those in attendance today who might not be aware. It was added once these esteemed crap lords realized that they had gained so much respect and authority within the Federation that no one would dare to abuse it like I'm currently doing. Because of this, they let it function as a way to have the accused waste time and weaken their own defense. He immediately turned his back on the bright red and fuming justices to face the audience, clearly having no intention or desire to direct any of his statements towards them. You see, without being kept on topic, they could very well stray from the arguments of the case, and after it's all said and done, find out that half their time was spent defending something that wasn't pertinent. Essentially, the joke is they were giving the accused rope to hang themselves with. Isn't that nice of them? I think so. Cause recently all I've seen them do is take from humanity, so to actually be given something for once 
Just makes me feel all warm and fuzzy inside. Now, I don't plan on using my full time, so I don't mind straying a little bit. But since I have wandered my way back on topic, let's see why we're here today. Humanity stands accused of, uh, you know, I was going to do it properly, but I can't muster up a single feck to give. So let me give you guys the sum up. We broke our contracts, ordered them, at the same time. All of our workers walked off job sites across entire systems. And now we're in big trouble with these noble and powerful races who have run this federation with respect and decorum and blah, blah, blah. You get the idea. Long story short, we almost tanked their economies with our walkout. Your economies. We are the reason prices have shot through the roof for all of you, and you're probably really mad about it. But that's the thing. You're mad because these guys told you we did a bad thing. But did they tell you why we did it? It seems like a really big thing to just be the biggest ever dick move, right? Well, when we first entered the Federation and the workforce at large, we were untested. They didn't know how well we would fit in and where. So when my people went out to find employment, the pay wasn't great. But we understood. We were new and needed to prove why we could do a good job as their other workers. So we signed contracts with lower wages. They full three quarters less than the other races, mind you. But we had a clause included for future negotiations on pay. So we got to work. I absolutely mean to toot my oracer's own horn when I say we knocked that shit out the park. Their production numbers from just the sheer volume of new workers went through the roof and only got better as we got really fecking good at it. You name it, there was some human who fit right into that mold. Hard labor, creative thinking, engineering, we could do it all. So we waited a while, until we thought we had paid our dues and we used the clause to bring them back to the table to discuss a pay increase in our contracts. And wouldn't you know it, there was always some kind of problem. From scheduling conflicts to a sudden influx of complaints about human work ethic, there was something that made them say, now's not the right time. We got pretty annoyed at that, but we kept our heads down, didn't make big fuss. Instead, we reached out through legal channels to find a way to move things forward. We filed suit after suit, going through all the right and proper channels to try and make them treat us fairly. But how foolish of us. We were using a system they had created, standing before judges they had appointed. So they stonewalled us, and no one said a damn thing. Not one of the Federation members stood up in our defense. Ambassadors, who I had considered friends, suddenly wouldn't take my calls or would find excuses not to help. And nothing happened. No one cared. Not until we fought back. Because now all of a sudden, here we are at a tribunal to seek justice. How fucking dare you? For the first time, he turned his gaze back on the justices to give them a scathing glare overflowing with hatred and venom. If looks could kill, the blast radius would have taken out the whole city block. You treat my people like garbage, pay them far less than they are worth, and have the gall to get pussy when we're finally had enough. And let's not even mention your tokens of sincerity when we first joined the Federations. Those uh, resource-rich planets you so graciously gave away while bearing the details that the environments were inhospitable to most forms of life. Do you know how many of my people died because you hid that information? Of course you don't. Because you would have to have let the cases reach your fucking desks first. 
thousands, thousands of men and women who set forth on what they were told was challenging, but survivable worlds lost their lives because of you. Thousands of families couldn't even bury the bodies of their loved ones because of you. But you fucked up. You didn't know about one of humanity's greatest qualities. Spite. We held our tongues and worked away in the background as we tried to handle things your way. The proper way. And we took every bit of pain you had forced on us, turned it into spite, and then used it to do what we thought couldn't be done. I'm proud to tell you fat wastes of space that we now have mining colonies on every single inhospitable world you gave us. And even more proud to tell you, go fuck your contracts, your tribunal, and most importantly, yourselves. You see, we ran the numbers and with the resources from the planets that you so graciously gifted us, our economy will be able to sustain itself for the next century. By which point I suspect we'll no longer have a need to join your federation. I say join like humanity isn't already a member. Funny thing about that, we've only been a member of the federation for 42 years and a built-in clause in every new member's contract states that if they are unsatisfied and wish to return to a state of independence, they are empowered to do so as long as its 50 years have not passed. It seems like a nice little escape hatch if things don't work out. But who would ever leave the largest and most stable economy in the galaxy? Us, it turns out, after nearly crashing said economy. And so we did, about two hours ago. When the doors closed on this lovely chamber and proceedings began, we submitted all the proper paperwork for the withdrawal of our species from this disgusting alliance. As of that moment, none of this trial meant anything, because I am not a representative of a Federation member, and neither myself nor my race are subject to the internal disciplinary system of the Federation. One of which is, you guessed it, this fucking tribunal. Now, I'm going to walk out of this chamber, and if you try and stop me, the human race will take it as a declaration of war, and we will show you that the only thing you're better at than we are is dying. The silence was deafening. In the history of the Federation, since the first implementation of these tribunals, there had never been such a long, true silence. Never before had an entire Federation been threatened like this. Never before had a member chosen to leave. There were so many firsts achieved in the span of a single speech that it rendered both audiences and justices completely unable to react. It was as if their minds had crashed and needed to reboot before they could even begin to address what had just happened. But by the time they had, the human had already walked out. They didn't know exactly why at that time, but a deep unease began stirring in the heart of the Federation that day. An unease that as thought of humanity no longer shackled by the codes and constraints of Federation law. A humanity they were not economically stable enough to wage war against for the foreseeable future, because half of their workforce had just left. A humanity that harbored ill intent for every single member who had taken advantage of their friendship and understanding or stood by in silence while it happened. They didn't yet understand how monstrous the foe they had provoked could be. But they would learn. Humanity would make sure of that. End of story. 1970. Story number one. Water and Ash. Written by Something Touches Back. It's no good. The old Krulian navigator sat heavily on his thighs. 
every feather drooping in resignation as he repeated itself. It's no good, yes, yes. I can get the antigrav working and get us back into orbit. But for what? We were thrown light years, of course, so nobody knows where to look for us. The interstellar comms and emergency beacon antennas burnt out in the atmosphere, so we can't call for help. And look here. The topside turret collapsed in on itself on impact, spewing heavy bearing grease all over the porthole generator's optics. Without a hyperspace porthole, we cannot escape the system. We're gonna die here. Perhaps, said Cody, but not today. Get some rest, Katha, and I'll go find us something to eat. Navigator Katha followed Cody to an open airlock, stopping just inside the badly damaged ship as Cody continued out across the low green ground cover towards the scree slope in the distance. The meadow in which the small scout ship had unceremoniously plummeted was in rolling hills, surrounded by forest, which in turn gave away to ice-covered mountains. The captain had somehow gotten them down before succumbing to his injuries, but the engineer died in the crash. Now it was just Cather and Cody. Cather had never served with a non-Crudian before, and had no idea what the captain was thinking, bringing a human on board as an apprentice. As Cather watched, Cody, in the distance, appeared to be rummaging around in the scree slope before abruptly sitting down. A sharp sound told Cather that Cody was smashing rocks together. Yes, they were going to die here. Cather and he this young idiot. Cather shuffled back inside to see if he could do anything useful. A couple of hours had passed before a sound pulled Cather back to the airlock. A heavy wrench had the ready. It was Cody, now walking with the aid of a long pointy stick and struggling under the weight of a large carcass slung over his back. Hey Cather, said Cody, do you think you could use the welding torch to get a fire burning out there somewhere? I prefer my meat cooked. Cody emphasized meat by heaving the carcass onto the ground about six meters away from the spacecraft. He then rolled it onto its back, exposing that he had already slid it open and removed its internal organs. Soon, Cody was working his way around the body, punching the skin away from the meat and cutting where necessary with a... Cather wandered over to get a better look. A rock? How are you doing that? asked Cather. How come there isn't a single decent bladed tool in this whole spacecraft? retorted Cody. This is just a chunk of obsidian from the scree slope by that I bifacially napped to make a basic hand axe. It's what I use to cut and sharpen my spear, so, uh, a fire? Cather looked around. Oh, right, I'll get the torch. Grab a couple metal pots and something that can be used as a funnel while you're at it, said Cody, already abandoning the carcass to gather some firewood. It was becoming clear to Cody that Cather was more of an indoor crudium than likely had no idea how to make a fire out of natural wood. Besides, for the fire, Cody specifically wanted hardwoods with minimal pitch or creosote. More time passed, and with much work from Cody and not nearly as much from Cather, many small chunks of meat skewered onto freshly cut and peeled branches were roasting over a bit of brightly glowing coals, while globs of fat and oil dripped out in smashes of fire. Cather was sure the smell would attract some larger predator. It was undoubtedly attracting him. Cather moved closer to the comforting light and delicious smell. Cody, meanwhile, was busy packing ash from the fire into a funnel. When he felt he had enough crammed in there, he used one pot to pour water from a nearby rainwater puddle into the funnel, through which it drained into the other pot. Cather was fascinated as he was clueless. Was Cody hoping to somehow purify the water by pouring it through the ash? Shouldn't he be using charcoal instead? 
but when the lower pot was full, Cody moved it to the hot coals. Then he took what had been his porter pot and put all the fat he had carved from the carcass into it. This too went on to the charcoals to heat. At least Cather understood this part. Cather's mother had rendered fat to make pure tallow that could be used for certain pastry doughs. Night fell. The temperature dropped and still Cody worked with his pots. The rapidly decreasing temperature did have the advantage of cooling the fat faster. Once it cooled, Cody pulled the light-colored disc of tallow from the top of the remaining liquid, dumped the fluid, and then remelted the tallow. By the third time he did this, the night was half over, and the tallow was nearly white. Finally, Cody poured the now tepid ash water into the remelted white tallow, stirring constantly and occasionally interrupting his pour to let the mixture get thoroughly blended. The old crudium had long since gone to bed, and still Cody poured and stirred. The first hint of dawn appeared when Cody was finally satisfied, tipping the pot contents onto a towel. He checked his white cake of glop one more time before nodding smugly to himself. Cody took a break to eat more of the long cold meat and checked the campsite before carrying his precious mound of white glop into the spacecraft. Gather woke to the sound of Cody rustling around in the porthole generator room. Inside, he found Cody rubbing a wet cloth on a cake of white stuff before rubbing it on the optical lens. Wash, rinse, dry. Half of the porthole generator was already spotless. Turning, Cody said, Well, good morning, Cather. Do you think that you can get us into orbit so that we can see if this thing will open a porthole for us? I'm ready to go home. Cather inspected the porthole generator closer. I've never worked with a human before. Are they all like you? I gotta say, you're all right, kid. Then looking at the white mound in the towel, how did you know how to do that? It's an old family wisdom, said Cody. The cake is a lie. End of story. Story number two, the new one, written by Fred Lowe. No one really knew when she first showed up in the chambers. She had your basic bipedal vertebrate body type, though a bit shorter, but more upright than a few of the others. Since she never spoke and kept out of the way, we really didn't mind her. After a short while, she was pretty much forgotten. No matter what the discourse was, she sat back to the rear, out of the way, silent. She was seemingly ignored by everyone, with the exception of myself. She looked out of place, her long blue and green hair, pale skin, and her deep blue eyes, and shorter stature than most. She appeared to have two eyes, however. One was obstructed by some sort of covering surrounded by a scar in her skin. I have no idea what could have happened to cause something like that. Bucking the trend, the rest of us followed. She wasn't wearing the draped cloth, or even a nude like a few others I'd seen. She wore a thick but flexible black material with silver accents that seemed doubly thick near the joints. A few chains decorated her waist, while high and thick coverings surrounded her feet. Stress creases could be seen throughout. Whatever the material was, it seemed to have been worn for quite some time. As much as I attempted to pay attention where it was needed, my eyes often drifted back to her, while the rest ignored her. She didn't seem to ignore the rest. Her eye was constantly drifting amongst everyone, judging by the changes in her countenance. It seemed she was attentive to the proceedings. Eventually, I paid more attention to the work, where it was supposed to be. Things progressed as they always will and continued as they must. It was mostly the usual arguments. Who got what at what time and who will remain allied and who will begin to fight. I felt something pull to me, calling out to me, 
pleading for help and safety, praying for answers. I generally shrugged these off, but this was becoming a strong force. The room started to quiet as many of the others shared the same feeling. I glanced again to the rear to see the newcomer was having a reaction as well. It turned out she was speaking calmly to some figure draped entirely in black and ragged cloth. After a moment, the figure evaporated and the woman finally stood. She moved towards the center of the room with a hauntingly fluid grace. The jangle of chains as she moved became the only sound that was heard. Every eye and every organ focused on her as she made her way to the podium in the middle of the hall. She stood behind the podium and took a moment to look at every individual in the entirety of the room. She closed her eye and bowed her head slightly before opening it, raising her head before calling out to all in a sing-song voice. I am Gaia. I now speak before you all to announce, my children, they are coming. End of story. 1971. Uplifted is a dirty word. Written by K. Cern. Galactic Council Grand Chambers, the core. I will not have an uplifted stand in these hollowed halls and dictate terms to me, the Taurinian representative declared. Packing their mandibles with each word, the sensory stalks shaking violently in emphasis. How dare you lesser sapiens desecrate this place with your insolence? All around the Grand Chamber of the Galactic Council, representatives shouted their agreement from their elevated positions amongst the tiered stands. The words lost in the cacophony of howls, shrieks, shouts and whistles of dozens of alien languages were not their meaning. They were furious. Meanwhile, the being that had elicited such a response from the August gathering remained silent and unmoving, nothing showing on its strangely smooth, glossy black face. Order! Order! shouted the speaker, a tall, almost emaciated-looking Armenian male, smashing his gravel against the railing of his podium. I will have order! Eventually, the representatives regained their composure and settled back to continue watching the spectacle unfolding before them though more than a few continued to whisper at one another. Taking a deep breath, the speaker turned their attention back to the strange being below. His podium, too, was elevated like the rest to look down on supplicants, or at least that had been its creator's intent. None had ever dreamed one would come before them to make demands rather than beg for boons. Continue, the speaker ordered, of the being, attempting to wrest back some semblance of control. I will repeat myself said the being in an even tone, the room amplifying its voice so all could hear. The Unified Stellar Nations, the Commonwealth of Stars, and the Unified Soul Republic, as representatives of humanity and her offshoots, demand that all laws regarding so-called greater and lesser sapiens be repealed, that those deemed uplifted be granted full and true rights as galactic citizens, and that the sham of a council be dissolved effective immediately. Once more, the chamber erupted into chaos, and for a moment, the speaker was convinced some of the more excitable representatives might choose to leap over the stands and attack the being physically. The moment passed, however, as the being continued not to move or show any reaction at all to the insults being hurled at it. A shudder ran through the speaker's limbs. The damn thing was creepy, standing so still and impassive. Human, the speaker said once the room had settled once more deigning to acknowledge the being species in a sign of minor respect. I understand your kind are new to the greater galaxy, 
having only recently been uplifted by the Kerrang some 500 of your years ago. So please allow me to explain to you what has clearly been misunderstood by your species. The being, the human, inclined its head slightly, that perfectly smooth head that showed no emotion. The speaker had no idea what was meant, but they took this as a sign to continue. Since the very first of the elders began their journey across the stars, it has been agreed that only those that are able to unlock the secrets of faster-than-light technology are advanced enough to contribute to the laws that govern galactic civilization. The speaker droned on in what he believed to be a sonorous tone. Around the chamber, representatives stamped feet, wrapped claws, or hooted softly in agreement. This was decided not to oppress, you must understand, but to safeguard those not yet ready for the heavy responsibility that comes with the position of this August Council. And the uplifted, the human prompted, was there a harder edge to his voice that time? The speaker wondered. He wasn't sure. Perhaps he had imagined it. Perhaps these humans were too primitive to experience much in the way of emotions. Alas, sadly, not all are able to reach the stars on their own, the speaker replied, spreading wide all four of his stick-like arms in a sign of grief. It truly broke our hearts to see so many suffering a doomed existence, trapped as they were to a single star system. Why, a single solar flare or gamma ray burst could cause an entire people to go extinct. The human said nothing. The speaker scrunched its eyes closed in its species equivalent of a frown. Was it stupid? Did it not understand what we were saying? So, with grave deliberation, we chose to save those we deemed at most risk, the speaker added. To create the first uplifted. You created slaves, the human stated flatly. The speaker's eyes bulged. You overstep yourself. The speaker shouted an insult rage. We do not deny that the uplifted were not granted full membership to the galactic governance, but, as I have explained, this was done with their best interest in mind, and the best interest of the galaxy at large. We could hardly have those lesser sapiens wandering freely through the galaxy now, could we? Fighting their silly little walls, upsetting peaceful peoples. For a moment, the human was silent and still. Then... With slow, deliberate motions, it reached its two arms up to its head, grasped and twisted and tore its own head off. The speaker nearly fainted before he realized, no, it wasn't their head, it was some kind of protective covering. Did that mean that the rest of the creature's carapace was also some kind of artificial armor? What kind of uncivilized being more armor to a council meeting? You restricted the movement of entire species to me technological advancement that threatened your rule and created a class of second-class citizens that you could force to act as slaves in your factories, your mines, and your very homes. The human shouted. The sheer volume produced by such an otherwise unimposing being shocked the speaker enough that he rocked back on his heels. Throwing the helmet to the ground with enough force to crack the material, the human took a step forward. Involuntarily, the speaker found himself taking a step back at the naked fury of the creature's face. It was like a snarling beast, its terrifying eyes ablaze as they bored into him. If you refuse our demands, then you leave us no choice, the human snarled. Humanity declares war against this council and every member species thereof. Bridge of the Indomitable, Edge of Karong Space Commander Karakthanak quietly considered the censored readings before him from the comfort of his command chair, idly tapping his finger segments against the chair's arm. Three ships. Why only three ships? They didn't make sense, and that made him uneasy. The war against the humans had been raging for years now, 
Not so long a time, given the vast distances involved, but long enough that he had learned to treat the humans with caution. More than one council fleet had been lost to human cunning and treachery, and he wasn't about to let these be the next. He had been sent to secure an automated shipyard on the edge of Kurong space, orbiting some unimportant planet he didn't ever bother learning the name of. Not for the Kurong, of course. Those cowards had turned traitor in the first months of the war, joining the humans and denying the Council their ships and trade routes. In retaliation, the Council had blockaded Karong space and denied them access to Council markets. The Council had expected the Karong to come groveling back in short order, but instead, they had simply ignored the Council and shifted their trade to the uplifted of all things. Karak Thanak shook his mandibled head in cold disbelief. The humans he could respect. They might be uplifted, but they had proven, in his opinion, their mastery of FTL technology. After all, no one else had thought to create FTL weapons before the humans. But the rest of the uplifted, nothing but unwashed barbarians with delusions of grandeur. He'd wiped a lot of them out if it were up to him, replaced them all with Turinian drone cast. They never got ideas too big for their heads. But are your orders, Fleet Commander? asked the first officer, a recently transferred techno-organic named PF1AXXVK. He graciously went by Axvik when dealing with non-techno-organics. Hold position, Karak the Knack ordered, never taking his eyes from sensor readings. But there is only three of them. Surely we can... Axvik started. I was unaware of your promotion to fleet commander, first officer, barked Karak the Knack, snapping his gaze towards the man. Axvik blanched his pale, almost translucent vestigial scales, revealing the hot orange blood flushing his face. What little face wasn't replaced by gleaming chrome, anyway. I do not trust the humans, Karak the Knack admitted once he was satisfied that he'd put his first officer in his place. If you ever hoped to command a ship of your own, you would do well to do the same. They are a dangerous enemy. Fleet Commander, please accept my apology. I did not mean to overstep my position, Oxvk said, bowing his head and raising his two arms out in submission. So much like the humans, Karak the Knack thought running his eye facets over the techno-organic. A single trunk with two legs at the bottom and two arms in the middle, a brain casing and sensory organs atop a thinner trunk sprouting from the top. It was a common form for non-insectoid organics, but it still made his wings twitch in disgust. Speak of mind, First Officer, correct the knack aloud, hiding his disgust. Bleed Commander, it's just... They're uplifted, he exclaimed. How dangerous could they possibly be? Tell me, First Officer, Karak the Knack said. What do they say of our war against the humans back in Council Space? That we are grinding the pathetic primates to dust, Fleet Commander, Oxvk answered immediately. That you lead our fleets to victory after victory, and that the war is already in its final days. Karak the Knack laughed aloud, a single harsh shout. <laughs> do you know how many Fleet Commanders there have been before me? He asked. I don't understand, Fleet Commander, Oxvk answered uncertainly. There has been only the one fleet commander overseeing the war against the humans. Nine, said Karak the Knack, bluntly. There have been nine other fleet commanders before me. Each was defeated and killed by the humans. Compared to those nine, I have survived the longest. But there are those that argue this is only because I'm a coward. Then I dare not face the humans without overwhelming odds in my favor. Surely you have challenged these claims, fleet commander, Oxvik protested. Why would I? asked Karak the Knack. They speak the truth, even if they are fools. For only fools would choose to face humans without overwhelming odds. Anything else is doomed to failure. 
Then you are telling me the council has been lying all this time? Oxford said quietly, as if he didn't believe he was even asking the question. Lies, propaganda, governance is all the same thing. Karak the Naxpat. What do they teach in the academies these days? Would you tell your creechmates how many of their children have fallen to the humans? Fill your hive mates with fear of an enemy we have been unable to stop. Of course you would not. Oxford was silent at time, and Karak the Nack thought he would say something more, but finally he asked. Now we're losing the war, fleet commander. Karak the Nack laughed again. Longer this time. <laughs> First officer, we've already lost this war. Bridge of the USN Spacey McSpaceface, Edge of Kerrang Space. What does that bunk bastard do now? Admiral Archer asked, coming to stand behind his sensor officer. A tall, well-built man, only just starting to show his 150 years in the graying around his temples and through his neatly trimmed beard. He was starting to get antsy at the lack of activity. Still no movement, sir, replied the sensor officer. A game of chicken, is it? said Archer. Sir? asked the sensor officer. Never mind, Lieutenant. Old Earth saying, said Archer. Means the wily bastard is waiting for us to make the first move. Orders, sir, asked his first officer. If he wants to make us make the first move, then let's make it. Turning on his heels, Archer stalked across the bridge and stood before his chair. Prepare the weapon. Aye, sir, came the response from his weapons officer. Archer felt the decking beneath his feet begin to thrum with energy. Weapon armed. I hope the egghead's got those kinks worked out, said the first officer. Let's find out, Archer said. Ha! Buffalo Beach, edge of Kerrang space. Captain, retired, Olak, Chief, Ka'ulk, glanced up from his hammock towards the sky as night was turned to day in an instant. Where a breath before had been the stars and twinkling lights of the shipyards, a great tear in space now hung, spewing, boiling, burning light, and who knew what other non-visible forms of radiation. Then, just as suddenly as it had appeared, it was gone. What was that, Grandpa? shouted a youngling that had been playing in the cool, damp sand beneath him, who was now also staring up at the once more dark sky. Humans, youngling Jessica, Olak snorted, finally tearing his eyes away. If something strange, weird, terrifying, or impossible happened, it was the humans. Humans? repeated the youngling in wonder. I hope I get to meet a human someday. Olak snorted again and looked down at the youngling lovingly. Did I ever tell you the story of your namesake? End of story. 1972. Story number one. Monsters of our own making. Written by Dr. Doritos, MD. Who can also be found on Wattpad and Royal Road. When we first encountered humanity, they extended a hand of friendship. It was clear from the moment we met that the United Systems of Terror was like the countless other weak peaceful federations we'd previously encountered and subjugated. The feeble mass drivers and nuclear missile launch cells on their ships served only to corroborate our impressions of their weakness. And so we continued with standard protocol, as we Kazari had done so many times throughout our history. We offered them an ultimatum. Submit to the Kazari Imperium, surrender all of your technologies, and your population as slaves, or uh, die. Our ambassadors told theirs. We gave them a month for their response, roughly the amount of time it took for us to ready an invasion fleet. Like most other races under our thumb, the Terrans refused our ultimatum, 
and so we dispatched a fleet to teach them a lesson. As we had done so many times before, the 12th Invasion Fleet subsequently ransacked one of their outlying colonies, pulverizing its infrastructure along with the colony's citizens. With devastating plasma lances, what remained of the survivors were rounded up and painfully gutted, with the recording of this message broadcasted to Terran media. They threw fleets at us in response to no avail. Their mass drivers and nuclear missiles failed to penetrate our shields and point defense networks, scoring them a claw nail's worth of victories for every handful we grabbed. Then we struck the next world, ravaging it and its people. We sent them another message, once more, urging them to submit. It was after the second massacre of colonists that we discovered that a coup had occurred in their capital. All the Terran broadcasts that we monitored pointed to the same thing. Their leaders had been replaced. Naturally, we saw this as an opportunity and pushed deeper into the newly rebranded Dominion of Man's Territory. We reached their third and fourth colony worlds with two separate fleets, both admirals notifying command of the commencement of their routine operations. Then they vanished. Nothing on our senses. Nothing on our senses. No distress calls from the fleets of any kind. It was as if they were erased from existence. Thinking it a freak, still a coincidence, we sent more fleets to investigate. It was a blood-curdling surprise when I and my colleagues in high command lost contact with these fleets as well. Any other fleets we sent out suffered similar fates, their transmissions cutting out mid-response if they managed to get through it all. Our strategists could never figure out why. Neither scouting stealth ships nor battle survivors ever returned to tell the tale. To add to the mystery, stars along the outskirts of our territory began to shine, their solar brilliance corresponding to those of Supernova. I began to assume the worst, wondering what could have happened and why these incidents might have happened. It was only when a human fleet dropped into one of our core worlds, Jovar Prime, that I learned why. After a conference with my fellow admirals, we were subjected to blaring alarms that screamed throughout our space station. A small Terran fleet, not unlike the ones of the 12th Invasion Fleet, had so easily defeated, had popped up along the edge of the system. Originally, we would have disregarded this minor incursion and assumed it to be taken care of by our patrols. However, the thought of our lost fleets and the fact that these humans had bypassed our outer systems concerned us greatly. We treated this incursion as a serious threat, assuming the worst and broadcasted for reinforcements while the system's fleet raced towards the enemy. Jovar's sun dimming behind their backs, with the firepower far exceeding that of all of our combined invasion fleets. We felt confident in our defense. Mere moments after they exited the sun's gravity well, they were wiped out simultaneously. Hundreds of brilliant fireballs lit up the space around the station dazzling us with the most fear-inducing light show we have ever seen. I stood there, jaw agape as my mind attempted to comprehend what I had just seen. I looked at my colleagues for confirmation, only to realize that my great fear had come to light. The light show was indeed real, and they too were shocked by the abrupt destruction of Jovar's mighty defense fleet. The luminosity from the detonation soon subsided leaving a cloud of debris that glittered under Jovan's radiance. Now senses readjusted, seeing the human fleet continue their approach. 
I remember the conversation I had with my colleagues as we analyzed the fleet composition. Unable to fathom what I had seen, I asked the other admirals. They only got 12 ships. I identified one carrier traveling alongside its cruiser and destroyer escorts, wondering what had just happened to our fleet. It was then that our senses picked up 12 small objects exiting the carrier's hangars. Upon closer inspection, it was clear that these objects were not the standard fighters documented in our records. These were some sort of drone variation of fighters. The 12 drones proceeded to engage their drives, jumping towards Joe Var Prime. Our sensors picked up no exit residue, leaving us to wonder where those drones were deployed to. Perhaps they were scouts, attempting to conduct reconnaissance of our core system. For a few minutes, we sat staring at our sensors, considering our options and hoping that reinforcements would arrive. Then, a flash blinded our instruments. We turned, wondering where this sudden disturbance originated from, only to find that it had come from Jovar Prime. More accurately, it had come from the complete annihilation of the planet's core. The entire world, along with the billions of citizens living on it, were erased in an instant. Oceans turned into plasma, reaching out from the planet erratically like an eruption of solar flares. Continental sheets carrying the molten remains of our cities were ejected from the world, cracking away from Jovar Prime like an eggshell. The satellites and stations in orbit were all but blown away, like cosmic dust riding solar wind. We were so entranced by the terror of what we had just witnessed that we failed to realize our station had been boarded. Our bodies, merely lifeless husks after seeing the destruction of a planet, gave little resistance to the Terran soldiers that rushed into our station. I recall little as I was dragged away by their mammalian forms, only snippets of their conversations. All security personnel eliminated. Hostile HVT secure. You're cleared to wipe the system, one of them said as I was led aboard their massive carrier. They pushed me along the tight hallways of the polished-looking vessel, directing me towards their brig. I walked in silence, looking at the windows as a final swarm of hundreds of drones zipped off towards Jovar's sun, closing my eyes as the human fleet engaged their drives. They eventually transported me and my fellow admirals off the carrier, bringing us to an undisclosed location. There, they surgically implanted some sort of device which connected to our nervous systems. The speed and precision with which they conducted the operation was frightening, suggesting that they had experience. I shuddered to think at how many must have suffered terrible fates for the Terrans to learn so much, but also wondered if this was some sort of penance. It was then that I resigned myself to my fate, abandoning all hope of rescue, even abandoning all hope of my continued existence. I now sit alone, heart beating through my chest as I hyperventilate from the hellish emotional overload from the Terran's neural implants. I feel, to the fullest extent of my nervous system's capacity, the anguish and despair felt by those we had slaughtered, those we had tortured, those that we had enslaved. And with this moment's reprieve from torture, all I could do is reflect and wait for my eventual doom at the hands of the Terran scientists looking to conduct devious experiments. As tears streamed down my scales, I couldn't help but laugh. Perhaps I had finally lost my mind, but I cackled at the poetic justice of the universe. In an ironic twist of fate, we, the monster dragons who had subjugated countless races, had fallen to monsters of our own making.
End of story. Story number two. Sleep is for the weak. Written by Echoing Cascade. Chief Engineer Alison Alvarez was having a nice meal in the corner of the station's mess hall, while drinking an obscene amount of coffee and having a heated discussion with an empty bar stool to her right. She was eating fries and a burger made with some kind of green meat she insisted on calling Soylent Green, to the confusion of the A.N. staff and the annoyance of her fellow humans. The fact any time someone asked how her meal was, she would answer, it varies from person to person, wasn't making her any friends either. Is his seat taken? Allison turned to look at Conrad, who sat across from her. He was the man in charge of sentient resources, and bows to no king, the ranking Aeon security officer, with four of his guards and behind them, dancers in shadows of the station's medical expert. Allison, hi, what can I help you with? Conrad sat down, bows to no king moved to his right, and as all four of his guards aimed their rifles in the general vicinity of the engineer. Conrad, no, not much. I have a few questions, is all. Allison looked to the side and tilted her head in confusion as she saw dancers of shadows in the fencing posture, practicing lunges with a medical injector like it was a rapier. Yeah, a few questions, sure. She looked at the empty stool to her right, who refused to come to her aid. Spineless bastard, now you decide to shut up. Conrad, I'll cut to the chase. You need to take a vacation and sleep sometime this week. What? No, I I'm fine. She took a sip of the pint full of hot coffee on her table and looked at the empty bar stool to her right, which nodded in agreement. Conrad took his datapad, cleared his throat to read. Chief Engineer Allison has been seen, hands above her head, looking into space, laughing maniacally for several seconds on numerous occasions for the last couple of weeks. Allison looked away and Conrad continued, having discussions with inanimate objects and making increasingly bad jokes. Conrad, that last one you can disregard. Bow to no king. I disagree. Conrad gave the Aeon a surprised look. Laughing is not illegal and neither is talking to yourself. Conrad raised an eyebrow. Allison sighed. Fine, I'm not supposed to talk about it, but the Aeon government gave me a contract for the planetary defense station and a rather large budget, and I may or may not have forgotten to sleep now and again as it worked on it. She ate a couple of fries and took a sip of a coffee pint, which yelled in pain. She chose to ignore the screams. Tell you what, I promise to take it easy for the next few days and meet dancers in shadows for a checkup. Deal? Conrad nodded and began to get up, but then narrowed his eyes and sat back down. Show me the blueprints. Allison began to sweat. It's, uh, it's full of technical stuff. You'll be bored, trust me. Conrad raised his hand to bows to no king, and his guards all aimed their rifles at Allison's head. Allison? Allison deflated, set the plans on Conrad's datapad, crossed her arms and pouted. Conrad began to read, and very soon his eyes went wide. He pinched the bridge of his nose and said the single word, Dark! Dancers in shadows lunged forward at Allison with a loud, Hiyah! and injected her with a sedative on the side of her neck. As she drifted into unconsciousness, Allison whispered, Son of a... and then gave an angry look to her own chair, which she thought had her back. Conrad sighed as the security guards picked her up and began carrying her to the infirmary under the watchful eye of Dancers in Shadows. Balstino King moved next to Conrad. What was she making? Conrad handed him a data pad. Balstino King began to read. Okay, the amount of weapons on that thing is ridiculous, but overkill is not part of the human dictionary, so I don't see any issue. Hell, some of this is really ingenious. Bals, I don't see any problems with this. 
He reread the project's name. Bowels. Peace Moon. The idea to use terraforming drill to siphon power from a nearby star is genius. Conrad. Yeah. Except it's a battle station's main weapon, and the objective is to use it to blow up planets. Bowels to no king gasped in shock. Bowels. What in the hell? How did you figure that out? Conrad picked up Allison's fryers and ate them. Well, the design is a dead giveaway. He grabbed his data pad back and looked up page 14 of the blueprints and zoomed in on the Death Star picture featured there. At least if you're human. End of story. 1973. Humans are psychics, written by Elementacore. All of the representatives of the dozen interstellar nations took their seats, or stood, if that wasn't possible, in their respective areas of the Orion Union Council. The Yktaran representative took her place in the center of the room. I thank you all for coming on such short notice. She projected with her mind to everyone in the council. What exactly is the purpose of this meeting? I have incredibly important matters I should be attending to right now. The Aetonese representative demanded, getting straight to the point. Believe me, this is all worth your time. It is about the humans, the Yuktaran explained. She felt a wave of emotions ranging from disappointment, boredom, and annoyance. These primitives, what could they possibly be so important about the psionic inept fools? The Ukar representative exclaimed. The Yuktaran inwardly winced due to the force they put behind their projection. The Yukar were arguably the strongest species when it came to psychic abilities, so she wasn't exactly surprised that they had strong emotions about humans. After all, as far as everyone else in this room could tell, humans had no psychic abilities whatsoever. Every species that was a part of the Orion Arm had some psychic abilities. For some species, they only had the ability to project messages using their mind. For others, they could manipulate objects without touching them. For the Yukar, they had the unique ability to teleport short distances and could manipulate objects with incredible precision. For the Aetonese, they had enough psychic force to levitate their own bodies and fly across the surface of planets. Yukturans have two unique abilities, being that they could see brief snippets of events from the near future and can detect the emotions of other species without even trying. Rather than that, their psionic abilities were rather weak compared to other species. I would rather let one of our scientists explain, she said simply. On cue, a Yuturan scientist entered the room, nervously glancing around at the large council before him, as he stopped at the center of the podium. Allow me to represent Ulika, parapsychologist and physicist. Ulika, take it away. The representative made her way back to her area and took a seat. Uh, thank you, Madam Representative. I, uh, I have been called here today to present our findings of the nature of humans, uh, more specifically the nature of their psionic abilities. Contrary to what we initially thought, humans are in fact psychics. Immediately Ulukar was struck by a wave of emotions, disbelief, confusion, annoyance. Before he could be interrupted, he continued, You see... While humans lack the ability to converse through psionic waves, they still have a unique psychic ability, which is something we didn't know was possible. This ability is actually something that every single life form on their planet possesses, down to even bacteria, and it is this ability that may result in the destruction of the universe as we know it. 
the representatives of the Zerunians spoke up. Do you intentionally try to make a mockery of this council? How is it possible for humans, which are beings who have been known to possess no psychic abilities whatsoever for decades since their discovery, have an ability they have just been, what, hiding from us all this time? let alone the bacteria living on their system. How is that possible? Well, the truth is, Milligan stated, we don't know. We don't know how it is possible, because nothing like this has ever been observed before. But I am not here to talk about how this is possible. I am simply here to state the facts which we have discovered. Allow me to remind you about our discovery of humans. When we got a team to remotely observe the natural activity of several subjects, we thought we detected no psionic waves whatsoever. We were wrong. It's just that their brains produce so little psionic waves that we initially didn't even detect it. Our senses simply weren't designed to detect activity that week. No great, we've been called to this meeting because we've found out that humans are technically psychics. They're just too psionically inept to use any psychic abilities. This has been very enlightening and has provided so much incredibly useful information, the Ukar representative sarcastically exclaimed. Not quite. Like some species, they do have a passive psychic ability. For example, the ability of the Oyokans to make objects around them feel lighter. Oyokans do this without thinking. They can intentionally stop objects around them from feeding nighter. They just have to focus on doing so. Unfortunately, since humans don't know about their abilities, they can't stop using them. The Seekian representative then spoke. This has been very enlightening. However, I'm not quite sure where this is going. If you don't mind, could you perhaps tell us what exactly this passive ability of theirs actually is? There was a wave of agreement amongst the representatives. Ah, yes, apologies. I may have gotten slightly carried away, both explaining our findings. You see, humans have the unique psychic ability to manipulate dark energy. Ulukar felt confusion and concern amongst the representatives. What exactly does that entail? The Sotokol representative asked. Dark energy is the name of the unknown substance responsible for driving the expansion of the universe. The expansion of the universe was slow yet steady for billions of years, up until roughly 4.5 billion years ago. It is at this time which we believe life first emerged on Earth. Now, before anyone says anything, sure, this could be chalked up to coincidence. After all, the exact date in which the acceleration of the universe's expansion began is widely debated, as is the date which life originated on Earth, even amongst humans. However... We have observed space-time fluctuations around the solar system ever since the discovery of humans. No explanation for this has been found, except for the potential explanation that it has something to do with their massive particle accelerators they constructed on planets throughout their system. We still haven't figured out what their purpose is, but it was a fair assumption based on the limited information we had. One thing you may be aware of, is that the rate of expansion of the universe simply doesn't make sense, considering how long ago it began. And considering the rate of acceleration we've calculated, the universe should be bigger. It's something physicists have been struggling to wrap their heads around for centuries. However, 
if you take into account the mass extinction event that occurred on Earth that, that occurred 215 million years ago, which wiped out 90% of all life on Earth, and add that into the equation, the rate of acceleration for the expansion of the universe suddenly makes sense. And this rate of acceleration almost perfectly lines up with the rate of the acceleration of population of all life within the solar system. Now, if humans end up becoming an interstellar species by achieving FTL through non-psionic means, which there have been multiple papers made proving the possibilities of such thing, their population could continue to grow. Considering its current rate of acceleration, the force in which the universe is expanding will eventually rip apart every single physical object in the universe on a subatomic level. Ulika was hit with a deafening silence, feelings of awe, disbelief and fear washing over him from all the other representatives in the room. Thank you, Ulika, the Yuktaran representative said as she walked back down to the center platform. While she had already known about what Ulukar was going to say, deep down, she felt as shocked as the rest of the representatives, as if it was her first time hearing it. Well, this calamity is billions of years away. That doesn't mean it shouldn't concern us. We should take action now while we still can. The humans are progressing from a technological standpoint even faster than any other species we've observed. If they end up being too advanced to fight, then this event will be inevitable. We have a number of requests we want to put out to the administrators of the Orion Arm. Firstly, the restrictions on all nations affected when it comes to their ability to manufacture military ships and vehicles. We also request restrictions to be lifted on the use of weapons of mass destruction. Ultimately, we are asking your permission to perform genocide on every life form in the soul system in order to save all life currently in the universe as well as all life that may emerge later on. We hope you take into consideration what has been said here today when coming to your decision. Thank you for your time. End of story. I would quickly like to thank the T5 channel members and Patreons. Casper Arnholtz, Cam Maxwell, Lord Azrakal, It's Difficult to Pronounce, Dragzoon WRE, Holly's Sister, Arcadian. Thank you very much.